The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host Dave Homewood and this is another episode of the forum and I've got three more guests as panelists tonight and I'd like to welcome Dee Bond. Hi Dee. Hi Dave. And Mike Slack. Hi Mike. Hi. And I've got Brett Nichols. Hi Brett. G'day Dave. It's uh, really great to have all three of you on, on the uh, show tonight, and we've got quite a bit to get through, as usual, so we'll get stuck into it. Um, um, so, Dee, you're a, you're a warbird pilot, and you're an aerobatic pilot, and uh, you do all sorts of other things. You, you're also um, uh, part owner of Mercer Airfield, aren't you? That's right, yes. And, uh, Mike, you're, you're an air traffic controller and an aerobatic uh, pilot as well, and uh, quite a... Uh, an interest in aviation obviously and Brett Nichols you've you've uh, been on the show before and uh, you've um, obviously well known for the for the Stripe Masters and uh, uh, for your uh, input at Warbirds as well and you you own uh, a Harvard and and do you still part own the other Harvard? Sure do yeah Harvard 52 oh, yep. I've got a share in yeah yep right right so yeah uh, we've got heaps to heaps to cover tonight um and uh, you guys are going to be really interesting guests. Um, we'll we'll get we'll crack on into the news. Um, so I, I've got quite a bit of uh, news items that have been going on in the past uh, month since the last forum show. And one of the biggest there is only are, one news item I would have thought of in the, on the aviation Kiwi aviation theme scene. Oh really? Really? What was that? Full noise. <laughs> yeah, yes. That's the top. That's the top of my list. <laughs> Oh God! Wasn't it great? Out, Wasn't it great? Outstanding, it just, outstanding by Graham. Yeah, and the team. And the team, and of was, course. Yeah, I mean, full noise. The the Yak three that went, the the little Yak that could it went from Omaka in a container across to California, got reassembled, went across to Reno and Nevada, and uh, uh, did some test flights and found that their special race engine was not up to par and so the boys did a an 18 hour engine change overnight and 
managed to get the aircraft onto the start line just in time for the first race, which Graham won. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How good is that? And then and then uh, and then he carried on and got into the the uh, the gold. Did you all uh, watch it live on the on the feed? I only saw the uh, only got it, caught up with the feed for the uh, for the gold race, the last race that he was in. But I had oh, following right. him on uh, on Facebook and uh, up until then. Um, fantastic effort. It was just it was awesome to watch that that last race, even though there wasn't much much footage of him. Um, but that gold race was phenomenal. Um, to have a Kiwi in there was even better. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, uh, you know, watching the watching it live with knowing that there was people all across the country and across the world that were watching it, and I was getting messages backwards and forwards from other, uh, you know, other forum members and um, people like that, and it was just it was just a real buzz. It was it should have been on television. Why wasn't the media covering it? <laughs> I agree. Wasn't there any coverage at all? I didn't see anything. No, I didn't see. Oh, there's a bit in stuff. There was something in stuff, I believe. Yeah, and and that was only after it. It came out after the last race. Yeah. So yeah, you know, I mean, for the for the for the days that he was racing, uh, loads of people, including myself, were emailing, um, you know, media outlets and and saying, look, you've got to you've got to be watching this. You've got to be reporting on this because this is a, a kiwi that's gone there and he's doing something that no one's ever done before from this country and and he's doing it amazingly and doing and, it so uh, well yeah 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 it really for, for me it was it was like you know it, they, they were comparing it a lot to the burt munro story which it was and and again there's been other kiwis that have gone over there and shown them how to do it like john Britton with his motorbikes and yes. uh you know bruce mclaren mm. uh and and people like that, and he really has um, fallen into that league as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, Ke- Kiwi seem to do so well at all sorts of motorsports, and um, and unfortunately we se- just seem to get uh, get force fed with all sorts of rugby stories and 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 uh, cricket and things that personally don't really interest me a hell of a lot. But uh, I'm, I'm very keen to see more motorsport and more more aviation news in the in the mainline media. Yep, absolutely, absolutely, and I I reckon that that team may well be back, whether it's next year or the year yeah. after. They're go, they're going to go back, and um, you know I, I know a lot of the guys that were on the ground crew as well. Uh, you know Jay McIntyre and and his gym um, aviation uh, business has been right behind that aircraft ever since it got to New Zealand. They rebuilt it, and and Jay was over there, and uh, you know Al Marshall, our good friend Al Marshall, who was on the forum very recently. Uh, the forum show that is he's always on the forum uh and he was on the on the ground crew team and uh, uh ryan and tracy uh ryan southam and tracy dixon they um were there as well and their helmet that ryan has designed yeah. um oh man what, a, what an impressive <laughs> looking it's like something out of star wars <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> you see on uh, on Storkbook that uh, Facebook, I should say, that um, they are already talking about next year. So um, mm, that's yeah. that'll be a mammoth effort to, to ship it back home, then then ship it back over there next year. And if they if they return for future years after that, that's uh, they need to buy um, they need to buy shares in a shipping company. I think. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Do you know one of the things that really impresses me is they did all this without any big name sponsors. Mm. Now you look at all of the other things like the the yachting and 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 you know a lot of the motorsport they they get big names behind them oil companies and they get Toyota and all that these guys didn't they just did it 
Yeah. <laughs> the only the only sponsors that Graham named when I interviewed him were Jim, who you know were obviously doing the the maintenance mm. and and uh, and the engine company in the states who rebuilt the engine that they didn't use. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We know so, what was the, what was the problem with the race engine. No, I don't, no, I don't know yet. Um, we we'll have to have to wait and see, but. Uh, I do hope to get Graham back on the show uh, for a post-race um, interview. Uh, he was very good to come on the show just before he left for uh, the USA, and um, I'm keen to get him on and some of the ground crew team as well, so that'll be interesting. Yeah, yeah, that'll be a podcast I'll listen to. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, um, we probably should get on to some of the other news as well. Uh, I guess you would have seen that for uh, Wanaka next year, um they they've announced that they're going to have another uh, they're going to have one of their Polycarpoffs come back for the air show. Yes, uh, yes they are. Sixteen. How cool is that? Oh, with Yugas just... flying it, no less. Mm, correct. Yeah. Correct. He's uh, he's been involved with the whole um being a trustee on the on the Warbirds of Wanaka show. Um, I can say that uh, Yugas has been heavily involved in getting a bit to uh, to be shipped back to New Zealand. Yeah. Cool. I um I watched him fly one of the the. the the, the I-16s, I-16s, I, well, whatever yes. the small ones are, the Ratas, watched mm-hmm. them fly one of those after one of the, yeah, one of the Wanakas that, that I went to, it was either eight, uh, 08 or 2010, um, and he went out and, uh, and and flew one, and just watching what he could make that thing do um, was incredible. I mean, you see all of the other guys that fly them very well, but when Yugas goes up, does a does this huge loop with a double snap roll on the top of the loop, and continuing down, that was just phenomenal. I'd go back to see, I'd go back to Wanaka just to see that one manoeuvre done again. Yeah, well, I, I, I missed that one. My last Wanaka show was 2006, and I, I would love to see him flying one of those. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I want to get down there next year and, and actually see him fly it. I, I don't care if he does the, the, the aerobatics or not, because I've only ever seen the Polycarpops once, and that was 2006. So. Yeah. Oh, it's very exciting. It's the 30th anniversary of the first show, um, so we're trying to get as many of the original Warbirds back. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 30th anniversary. That's a that's a that's a good anniversary to have, isn't it? It yes. sure is. Yes. Hopefully, there's a few other things that may come out soon, but I might. Until then, my lips are sealed. <laughs> <laughs> was the uh, was the Catalina down there for the original air show? D. Do you know? Uh, or that. Would that have come along a little bit? Like, the first no, one would have been. I think yeah, it was later. Than that. that was eighty-eight. Was the yeah. first one that I went to. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. Or maybe there was a winds on par- a warbirds on parade or something. I think they had. A yeah, that was yeah, eighty-eight. Was the first one. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So we've and only I, aircraft in the country for um, twenty-two years. Okay. Right. 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 Cool. So I guess you guys will all be down there again. Well, I haven't been to Absolutely. a Wanaka since 2010, so um, if, if Yugas is coming back, then that might have to be leave leave required, of course, but uh, <laughs> down there to see it, that would be, I'd, yeah. yeah, yeah. And you'll be there with the Catalina, D? Absolutely, we'll be there. Awesome, awesome. And Brett, I guess you'll be taking uh, Harvard 65 down? Absolutely, <laughs> I'll be there with bells on, I can't wait, I love it, I love it, I just love trip flying down there and... And now that now they've got the updated app plan on my iPad and knee pad and a, and my iPad slot into my knee pad. It's it's just fabulous. I can't get lost. Awesome, <laughs> awesome. Uh, of course, um, sad news out of Wanaka uh, this week was that uh, one of their original uh, team members who has 
you know, he basically helped start the, the air show. Gavin Johnston died, so um, condolences to uh, all of his family and friends and uh, uh, all of those who worked with him on the air show. It's very sad news. It's sad news. Yeah. Uh, and another piece of news that actually Im- includes Wanaka too. I don't know if you saw, but the um, Bring Our Birds Home uh, uh, campaign, which is trying to get those old airliners back from overseas, um, it looks like they've found a home to put some of the airliners at Wanaka. Wasn't that a great oh. photograph? It was. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Oh, I missed the photograph. <laughs> we'll, we'll put the link into the show notes, but boy, boy gosh, it's... Uh, uh, I, I I don't know. It's uh, it's going to be interesting to see some of those uh, airliners down there if if it all happens. But I hope it does. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, in, in Warbirds this week, there's been two. Uh, or last week, there was two other nice big announcements um, as well. The the uh, the De Havilland Hornet. I'm sure you all mm. all cotton onto that one. Yeah. Uh, big project. Big project. Yeah. Definitely. Pioneer Aero is going to be rebuilding the De Havilland Hornet back to flying condition. Amazing. Well, I mean, if anybody can do it, they can pull it off. And a great bunch of guys, and they can really, you know, they'll do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that uh, Cora McRae, who's, you know, well behind this, he's been a Hornet fan all his life, and he's he's been uh, working away collecting drawings and all sorts of things. And um, I'm hoping to have him on the show sometime in the near future. So... Uh, to talk about this project. It's going to be a great one to follow, another great one to follow. And, and of course, the, the, other, uh, the other interesting uh, Warbird announcement was the Pathfinder Mosquito Trust has uh, announced that they're working towards raising money to rebuild a mosquito with, uh, with Avspex and uh, with Glenn Powell's company, um, Mosquito Restorations Limited. Ooh. So that's the, that's the Bomber project, which has been in the offing for about two years yeah. and uh, they're trying to put together cash uh, to get it all off the ground and have it rebuilt for, for the British uh, air show scene. So that would be mm. another, another awesome, awesome thing to happen, particularly for Britain. Oh yeah. Uh, what else have we got here? Oh, of course, one of the, the big news items this week has been the fuel crisis. I'm sure that uh, you've all got some sort of input on that. Oh, I've got that on my list as well for news, yep. It's, uh, yep. it's certainly had an interesting uh, interesting few days up at the, the uh, up in Auckland at the, at the airport there. It's, um, it hasn't so much... I, I, I wasn't working the first couple of days of the crisis, but um, uh, the, the last few days, it hasn't really affected operations too much, apart from the fact that all of the a lot of the aircraft are landing at maximum landing weight because they're tankering their own fuel oh, of in. Of course. Um, yeah, yeah. And a lot of them on outbound that are, that are going uh, long distances are actually going via places like Fiji, Samoa, you know, Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney, I think. I think Actually, I think Melbourne closed their doors and didn't want to sell any more fuel because they were running a little short themselves. But And I know Fiji wow. actually stopped, uh, stopped New Zealand stopping in there because they were using up all their reserves as well. Wow. So. Um, there's, uh, there's certainly had a bit of an impact, although the, the traffic numbers in and out of Auckland doesn't really show it because uh, you know the, 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 the aircraft are still getting here just with more stops. Well, hats off to all the, the, the logistics team and all the companies involved is all I can say. Yeah, mm. I totally agree. It certainly looked like a challenge. And I mean, there were some pretty um, left of field uh, solutions going on as well. 
Qantas bought across the uh, the 747 basically as a tanker, parked it on the on the apron, and they were um, towing all of their the Qantas 737s over to it and topping them off, and then putting them back on the gates. And uh, that was there for I think about 24 hours. Same, I think. Amazing, amazing. Yeah, they flew it down to Wellington and back, uh, tanked it up in Wellington and brought it back, and we're uh, topping off the aircraft out of the out of the triple seven. So, yeah, no, it was. Um, the funny thing was with, with with the whole with the whole thing was that at the day of, it was last Wednesday, I think, um, before the uh, before the, the the crisis happened. We were sitting in the office in the uh, the, the tower office at work, uh, talking with. There was a, a meeting going on with one of the airport company guys and 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 a couple of the senior controllers and, and from the tower, and we were talking about the fuel uh, the fuel pipeline coming into Auckland, and the airport company had some. Um, oh, beat me up, Scotty. Um, the airport <laughs> company, <laughs> the airport company had a had a repair to do on on some valve somewhere, and they were saying, and and the, the chappy was telling us about how what sort of jeopardy. They faced with it. Oh, turn it off. Go away. Um, and um, uh, they uh, they they said that if if the repair went went pear shaped, and for some reason there was a delay, then it would shut down the whole pipeline. And not only would there be no no ambulance coming into Auckland Airport, but there would be no other petrol coming into Auckland. And then I sort of I sort of joined in the discussion, and then a day later, what hits the news? <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Okay. So I had a little bit more knowledge about the the pipeline and the and and the and and the sort of consequences of, of a failure before you know not a, not a day before it actually happened. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, D, did it affect uh, operations from uh, Mercer at all, or no? No, we um, we were fortunate. We had full tanks down there, and um, right at the moment with the weather we've had. Uh, things have been a little quiet, so yep. between the weather and the full tank, we've been we've been good. Oh, okay, that's good. And um, Brett, do you know if uh, Ardmore had any problems? No, there's heaps of air gas, no problem at all. Heaps. Okay. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that, that was interesting. With um, like there were there was some of the operators out of Auckland. I know they they were all given I think thirty percent of their um of their daily or their weekly uptake um uh, that they were allowed to draw on. And I know was it. Barrier Airlines, Back Barrier Airlines have their caravan that operates in and out of in and out of Auckland. And that flew for about two days, and then they parked it because they ran out of uh, they they ran out of their their allocation. And I would have thought it would have been a quite an easy job for them to nip across to Ardmore and top it off there, or even like they do a flight up to Kaitaia, I think, and there must have been FPS. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I guess they could have sort of picked up, but instead of parked for a few days, so yeah, that was interesting. Yeah. Well, it's it's over now, isn't it? Oh, I was listening to the news tonight, and apparently they've they've pumped a whole lot of uh, air gas, or they have started pumping Jet A one into into Wirree, but I think it has to sit for sit. thirty yeah. hours or something. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and right. then they, they can... Yeah. Okay. Okay. So it's almost over. <laughs> almost over. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah. Oh well, that's uh, certainly quite an event, and. If anyone's going to do it, Auckland's going to do it because they're always the ones that seem to have these major crises. <laughs> third world city. Certainly <laughs> a third world transport system. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Someone who sits on the motorway for going to and from work. Yep. <clears throat> Don't get me started on that one. We've been pushing for uh, passenger rail south of 
Pepecura for the last, I don't know how many years. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I see they they are going to electrify the line south of Papakura to Pukekohe, aren't they? Yep, yep, it's coming. Are... But you know, nobody told us which decade. <laughs> ah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's always the problem. Uh, well, some good news out of Auckland too, as you will have all seen that the uh, Short Sunderland has come inside at Motat, and for the first time it's ever uh, been at that museum for the last fifty years. It's now undercover and. Looking gorgeous. Fantastic. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen it inside. I saw it, uh, probably, about, probably about six months ago was the last time I saw it. And it was, I think they were probably, it had had that coat of paint. It was looking pretty flash, but it was still outside. So it's good to hear it's moved in, indoors. Yes. Yeah. What were you saying, Brett? Oh, I just think it's a great effort by Motet. Well done. You know, it's a fabulous, fabulous. Yeah, absolutely. It, lo- it looks better now than it's ever looked in my lifetime, and uh, it probably looks better than it did when it was in service, I'd imagine. But that's that's pretty cool. Uh, the only other piece of news that I've got, which uh, you may have all seen break this afternoon, is uh, a certain Mr. Bill Tooley of Sanson is complaining about the jet noise uh-huh. yeah. because, <laughs> because he lives next door to Ohakia and there's jets flying there. Yeah. Classic NIMBY, isn't oh. it? I mean, you buy, buy, you buy a house near an Air Force base, you complain about the noise. It's crazy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the most wonderful thing, though, is even on stuff uh, where, the, where the news is broken, almost every response by people posting messages have been uh, on, the, on the, Air, the Air Force's side rather than agreeing with them. So I don't think there's many people there that live in Sanson or Bulls that would <laughs> not be would not be Air Force-minded people or, or Air Force families. So, you know, I think he's a, he might be a lone voice crying in the wilderness. Well, <laughs> and yet these lone voices make an awful lot of noise. Um, certainly the, uh, the noise lobby in Auckland with the new approaches mm. that we had in Auckland, um, mm. the noise lobby in there is apparently, from, from what I hear, is only three or four people. But they make an awful lot of noise for three or four people, and and uh, yeah, I, I don't know what you do about them. Well, well, that, that's it. Well, the RMA uh, governmental laws and the RMA process, which I'm well versed on, is um, makes it difficult. Yeah. For them. No, for for the people who are trying to conduct business, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, how to how to mitigate those the noise and and. Um, well, you know, these people who com- who complain justifiably or not have to be listened to, you know. Mm. And 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 they can raise an objection. That's right. Uh, without any cost to them. That's right. Oh, okay. Mm. Nor actually, that they don't have. Difficult. They don't actually even have to have a. Um, they don't have to be directly impacted. They could be only slightly impacted. Like you might be um, shadowing their morning walk or their morning coffee by a new house being built, and that's enough. To raise, that is enough to uh, raise a, um, a RMA complaint. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. And yet they'll be the first ones that want the uh, want the quick air service or the yeah, absolutely uh, you know, the, the, the cheap air and the rest of yeah. it. So. Yeah. Mm. So, have you guys got any news? Sorry, a typhoon just crashed today off the coast of Italy. Yeah. Oh yes, yeah, very sad. Very sad. Yeah, is that the, is that the first one to have a fatal crash? I don't know. Yeah. No, I don't no. know. Don't know. And I see on um, Facebook that two uh, Mustangs touched over Duxford in a formation. Oh yes, yeah, I did see that. 
that must have been a little bit scary, I'd imagine. I thought so, given the uh, uh, one a few years ago when uh, what was it, Avenger? Was it the Avenger? No, it wasn't Avenger. Was it? It was a uh, Sky uh, Sky Raider. Sky Raider. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it, yeah. It uh, touched the Mustang, and the Mustang crashed. That was an incredible uh, escape that that guy had. Yeah. Yeah, you know his, his parachute must so have just second thinking. You know, to get out to get out at low level is uh, is pretty dicey. Like uh, yes. most of us, yeah. you know, every time I've just thought about um, jumping out, and I practice, you know, getting out of the aircraft every time I every time I stop shut down. Um, you know, I reckon you'd have to be three thousand feet uh, to do it and and survive. And I mean, that guy must have been what well, he was basically in the circuit, wasn't he? He was, yeah. Yeah, so get out and actually have your parachute deploy um, and walk away or whether he walked or limped away, um, there's, you, you'd go out and buy a lottery ticket, that's for sure. Yeah, you would. I mean, I had the shoots for the Stripe Master. Oh, they were back shoots, not seat shoots, which would be different, but the back shoots, um, um, they were 100 knots, 500 feet was the minimum. Right. Wow. You have to be quick. <laughs> you have to be bloody quick. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you wouldn't have parachutes in the in the Catalina, would you, Dee? <laughs> no, no, we don't. Ah. We have life jackets, though. Yeah, well, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, but I guess even just trying to get out of a Catalina is not going to be that easy. Uh, you know, in, a, in an emergency, it's it's quite a unusual design with all the the little doors and yeah. Uh, like well, like little cabin cabin areas, isn't it? So. Definitely um, a boat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah. Any more news? Well, I guess um, the um, Vintage Air Rally is uh, encouraging people to submit uh, their interest in the flight for next March from South America to North America. Oh, yeah. yeah I oh, heard about yes. That. Yes, I had heard about that. That sounds amazing. Mm. Doesn't it, though? Yeah. Uh, now, where's it leaving from? Um, I can't pronounce it. I think it's Ushaya, is it? Is it uh, uh, was it Argentina? or I'm trying to remember now. Yeah, right at the, right at the bottom. Through bottom, yeah. Wow. that's What a journey that would be. Uh, it'll be amazing. Yeah. Are you thinking about joining it? or? I would love to. I would love to join it. Um, but you know, it's a busy time of year, um, right. in March and we're, um, New Zealand's hosting the international, uh, AOPA aircraft owners and pilots association, um, to New Zealand at the time, okay. um, and the week prior to, uh, Warbirds over Wanaka. Oh, yep. Yep. Awesome. So, um, mm. we're looking forward to having, um, a lot of aviators come and join us. And um, hopefully they'll take the time to tour the country by air as well while they're here. Well, yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah, well, um, I mean that that uh, rally though. I hope that they, uh, I hope they have uh, like a good website with lots of videos and, and so we can follow it because that'd be really interesting. Um, yeah, they've been pretty good. They have a, a great uh, Facebook page. Okay. So vintage air rally, um, and all the information's there either on, on the website um, or their Facebook page. Um, and you don't, what they're suggesting this year, you don't actually have to be an aviator. You just have to have an interest in um, 
in doing the flight. So I think they're 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 searching for adventurers right now. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. I'm just writing that down so I can look that up and put it into the show notes that that uh, Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, now, um, is there any other news? Well, I, um, because... I just remembered uh, I uh, went down to a hockey on the well, late last week for the. Uh, Harvard 15, which is the RNZS, Historic Flight Harvard. They had its 75th anniversary, 75th anniversary of its first flight, and that was on Friday last week of its oh. actual first mm. flight 75 years ago. Brilliant. Wow. Well, so I, I took Harvard 65 down, and we had a fun time. We took a few people up from, from, the, um, uh, from the Air Force who had um, worked on it and restored it, so it was great. They had a nice big cake and a very impressive cake with a picture of Harvard 75 on it, uh, sorry, Harvard 15 on it. So it's fantastic. Yeah, I, I saw a few uh, photos that uh, Brendan Deere and uh, uh, Gavin Conroy put up, and, and it, uh, the 1015 just looks so gorgeous in the World War II scheme. I think it's never looked that never looked as good as it does now. I just love it. It was a very impressive win. We did a photo shoot on the set day with uh, Rex Burton's Harvard uh, 76, 60, my Harvard, Harvard 65, and um, Harvard 15. It was it was a great flight. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from WarbirdRadio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening. I hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. I just want to run through a few events that are coming up uh, here in New Zealand. We're, we're getting really into the event season now that it's spring, and um, there's quite a few things coming up. And one, the first thing that I just want to mention is uh, confirmed today that we're having a the Wings Over New Zealand uh, Missing Wingman Trust lunch uh, on the 8th of October, and uh, that's a Sunday, and it's at the Five Stags uh, Restaurant and Bar here in Cambridge. And uh, we did this last year. You, you came down for it. Yeah, sure did. It was um, great fun. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's basically a lot of aviation people who uh, get together and we have lunch together and uh, talk aviation and uh, everybody puts $20 in the pot for the Missing Wingman Trust, which is the RNZAF's uh, equivalent of the Benevolent Fund, and um, yeah, raise a bit of money for those guys, which is great. And I've just checked my roster and I'm working. <laughs> ah, no, that's yeah. a shame. I'll try to come uh, down for it, Dave. I'm not sure. We're going to Sydney for the school holidays. So it's either that or the Monday we go, but I'll let you know. Okay, cool. Uh, coming up um, the week after that, on the 13th to the 15th of October, the Tiger Moth Club has their uh, fly-in at Tamaranui. So if you're around that area, you might see a lot of Tiger Moths flying around and, and chippies and things like that. Uh, on the... The 21st to the 23rd of October, the Taupo Gliding Club has their 50th anniversary uh, event, which is at Centennial Park in Taupo. Um, on the 4th of November, the uh, uh, GAPS at Gisborne, the uh, was it Gisborne Aviation Preservation Society, are having their first light Wings and Wheels uh, event. And the Spitfire is going down from Ardmore uh, for that, and they're going to have... A lot of uh, cars, uh, vintage cars, and uh, 
uh, other aircraft and and uh, their own aircraft, of course. And um, so that's uh, it's good to see that that group is sort of starting to run events now, and uh, they're making changes at the museum to modernise it and and make it a bit more of an attraction. Uh, coming up in November too, on the fourth and fifth, uh, is Black Sands, which is the excellent fly-in that we have at uh, Raglan. Uh, I've been to that a few times, and I hope to get there again this year. Um, it's just a, a wonderful weekend uh, at, at the beach at Raglan, and uh, lots and lots of aeroplanes come from all over the country. If Bruce can get past the uh, the council, oh, some great events there, Dave. Some great events. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, I believe there's been a bit of uh, bit of trouble with the council, but I think he might have sorted that now. Oh, so. good, good, good. Yeah. Uh, and then on the 12th of November, Warbirds have got their open day, uh, uh, which will be the um, second one this year, and uh, the the basically the summer or late spring really open day that they have there at Ardmore. Mm. We're hoping Catalina in Ardmore for that event and um, she'll be based there um, through into into January. Oh, great. Excellent. So where is it now? Currently in New Plymouth. Oh, yep, yep. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, the 22nd to the 24th of November at Amaka is the South Island Acro Fest. I'm sure that you might be taking an interest in that, Mike? Or, yeah, or I'm taking an interest in again, again in that. Andrew Love, who's organising it, has done a great job over the last few years with the uh, South Island aerobatic scene. And um, he's certainly promoting and has organised the, the Acrofest pretty well from what I hear. I haven't actually attended one yet, and unfortunately I can't get to this one either. I haven't said okay. that. You probably won't have an aeroplane to go to it with, but uh, um, it's, a, it's another event that I'd love to get to. Right. Uh, are you going to be able to get down to that one, Dee? Um, no, no, right at the moment that's um, unfortunately not on... on on my uh, calendar. Right, right. Ah, oh, well. Uh, I'm sure they'll have a, a great event anyway. Um, in, in, any event at Omark is pretty cool. Oh, yeah, it's a great <laughs> place. Yeah. I love it, I love it. Uh, and uh, the last thing I've got on here for this year, um, I can't can't not mention this, is the Wings Over New Zealand uh, Forum's Christmas party that we're having at the Fly DC3's hangar at Ardmore. And that's on Sunday, the 2nd of December. So um, we'll be releasing a bit more information about that soon uh at this stage it looks like we have uh, a very good guest speaker that's going to give a bit of a talk uh that's paul mcsweeney and um and because it's right next door to pioneer we'll probably be able to go through and have a look at some of the projects and things like that so hopefully that will that will happen on the day uh so long as paul's in the country he's hoping to be and um uh yeah we'll have uh one or two other activities going on there, but it'll just be a really good, relaxed uh, uh, event where we can just uh, socialise. It's a bit different from the normal forum meets. We won't be sitting down listening to talk, people talking all day. It'll be more social. It's a Christmas party. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. Uh, and now we should move on to the guest spot. Um, Dee, tell us what you've been up to lately. You've uh, you've been involved in the World Precision Flying Champs and uh, uh, you also... Uh, 
were competing in the 41st Air Race Classic. Yeah, that's right. Um, in June, um, I headed off to the US for the Air Race Classic. It's an all-women cross-country race, the second 42nd, uh, sorry, 41st annual race. And uh, my co-pilot and I uh, started late because we had a number of mechanical issues that uh, slowed us down at the start. Um, yeah. But um, late doesn't mean last. And while we were the last to uh, to finish at Santa Fe at the end of the race, um, we actually brought home the trophy. Uh, first time, some we think it's the first time in, uh, someone outside of the USA has won the Air Race Classic. Congratulations. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you very much. So what we aircraft were flying, were you flying? We were flying a Cessna 182. And all the aircraft are standard stock aircraft. They have to uh, that are raced at full power, so it's full noise from start to finish. Really? To um, fly, flybys that are timed at our airports on Ooh. route. It's a fully VFR race, and so you're clocked in and clocked out at each at each stop. And so you can either opt to fly by to continue, in which case, um, as you fly past the timers. They, your, your, your one leg finishes and the next starts, or you can opt to fly by to land, and so you'll be clocked off at that point. You come in, make a nice, safe landing, and then um, uh, go away again and do a restart from five miles out, and then they'll clock you on to the next leg. Wow. That sounds like a lot of fun. There's not a lot of opportunity you get to uh, to firewall everything and see what no, the what the exactly. thing actually and the, But the aeroplanes, actually, the engines and the aircraft love it. Really? Yeah. Um, wow. You know, it's you know, if you've got a, if you if you're trying to bet in a new engine, there's nothing like giving it a good hard run for four days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, this is this is fascinating. That you know, we've hardly heard anything about this, and and yeah, we've been just talking about full noise with uh, Graham Frew, and and you you've been doing it very much an equivalent of it in a Cessna. That's pretty cool. Yeah, man. yeah. No, we were um, absolutely delighted. It was my seventh race. I've been in the top ten uh, two or three times previously. I I did my first race in two thousand and one after we had uh, ferried a. Um, Twin Comanche off the back of the London to Sydney air race from Sydney back to the US. We landed in um, uh, California and the race that year started out of um, Gillespie Field um, in San Diego. And yeah. so we, we did, that was my first year of racing um, in the air race classic. And I just had such a blast. I, uh, I, I really had to go back and I have a, a race sponsor who lends me his aircraft. Um, so I've been racing his aircraft since 2001, uh, initially uh, in a Citabria. And I can tell you, it's not a great aircraft for air racing with, when the legs are beyond 250 miles. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the, the Cessna 182 is a fabulous platform for this type of um, cross-country race. And all of the races... Prior to the race each year, we we have to undertake a handicap flight, which is at must be done in still conditions at density altitude of six thousand feet, 
and we do a box, a three-minute each leg box, um, overseen by um, our handicapped pilot who watches that we're ensuring that we have uh, made sure that the aircraft is performing at its peak performance. Um, and then those flights are sent, those flight, that flight data is recorded and sent off to, um, to the judging committee. And then they go through and make sure that, that we've done a good flight. Um, and then they give us, uh, issue us with our handicap speed for the year, uh, for the race. Um, uh, so, uh, I was just going to say, how many, how many days does the, does the race, is the race held over? Four day race. Oh, wow. Two and a half thousand miles. Oh, wow. Hold oh, on. Wow. It, it is, it is for wow. in the heat of the summer. So you can imagine, um, um, uh, we have interesting weather. Yeah. <laughs> in the heat of you know in the middle of America, uh, you know thunderstorms are, are frequent at that time of year. That's so awesome. You're negotiating wow. interesting weather, and often depending on the course, because it changes from year to year. So this year, as I say, we flew from Frederick, Maryland, which was the home of AOPA in the US, to um, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Right. Next year. The race starts in Sweetwater, Texas, which is the home of the wasp, and oh, yeah, yeah. finishes in Freiburg, Maine. Wow, this is wow. awesome! Um, it really, it really is a fun race, and um, so yeah. So this year we had fifty-two aircraft entered, forty-nine started, and forty-six finished without being disqualified. <laughs> wow! Um, of which we had. <laughs> 13 of the teams uh, were racing for the first time. 16 of the teams were college teams. So these are girls who have, who are studying aviation at different col aviation colleges around the country. And uh, every team is made up of two pilots, a minimum of two pilots. So, um, and that's for safety, for safety reasons. Uh, it, they used to, race and solo, but um, for as long as I've been racing, it's been um, two pilots. And then we're allowed to take passengers for which we get a, a small benefit. Again, though, the passenger needs to be um, a student pilot or some or female interested in, in aviation. Right. And so the courses, are they, do they, oh, sorry, the, the courses, do they, like, give you two points to fly between and you've got to find the best way there around thunderstorms, obviously, or, or is yep. it, uh, is it a little it, more? No, no, there's, uh, it's not a, it's an, it's, it's not a navigation race in terms of having to find a place. We know in yeah. advance exactly, exactly where we're going. Um, a lot of the aircraft, um, oh, we all generally, we all carry, um, GPS. Um, a lot of the aircraft now are getting feeds into the aircraft with regard to weather, so we had access to that. So we ran Garmin in the aircraft. I had um, Air Navigation Pro on my iPad. My co-pilot um, ran ForeFlight, and we had a, um, a device in the aircraft that enabled us to pick up Wi-Fi. Oh. So she was able to pick up feeds um, about weather and no dam changes and traffic to to her device. 
Um, I can't wait till we get similar um, access to to that information here in New Zealand, but that will really come down to exporting that technology from the US down here. I think right. you know our new southern skies will will make that easier for us to get that same sort of data fed to us in aircraft, and I'm you know it it makes the world of difference. I can tell you, we had a race a few years ago where on the last day we had to fly through a line of thunderstorms and there was 20 of us starting on the last day to do one leg and 15 of the 20 of us, no, 14 of the 20 of us didn't finish and ended up scattered between Maine and Canada where they (laughs) finished that year at different airports because they had to land out. Even on this year's race, we uh, had a leg out of... Um, Bemidji um, which is right in the north part of Minnesota and we arrived there, we had our strategy at, we had decided that we needed to leave really early in the morning um, so we unfortunately because of our mechanical issues that we'd had on the race were the last intimate um, Bemidji the previous night and we caught up because there was 30 other aircraft there so we got in about nine o'clock at night, and we were back out at the field at uh, pre before six o'clock for a six thirty start. Sure. Uh, we have what they call a remain overnight list, and so uh, you have to go out in the same order that you arrived in, yep. unless um, someone decides that for whatever reason they don't want to go in race order, and then that then everyone after them can carry on as they like. So on the on the this was on the morning of the third morning. Uh, the races that were at the real start of, of that list, five of them took off, even though there was a line of weather between us and our next stop. And we have um, flight following, not in terms of um, air traffic, but we had a program so that everyone could follow us on the race. And at every stop, there was a big screen. So we're all sitting there watching these first five aircraft go they did a straight line straight through the middle of the weather that was showing on radar and so another dozen aircraft went okay it looks like it's good to go they get they got airborne and then those 12 aircraft ended up scattering around this thunderstorm activity Um, so that leg was not particularly good for them fortunately for us we had decided that unless we were going first thing in the morning, the best option was to go last thing at night. So we stuck around all day and waited and waited. The race is really, a, it's about strategy, determining a strategy. Um, so given the race was going from east to west, we had already predicted it was going to be a, a headwind race because the winds obviously come from the west. Mm, yep. And so I had gone through the list and identified all the aircraft that could fly faster than us because obviously it suited aircraft that were faster because they're in the headwind for less time. And there was 20 aircraft that were faster than us. So we assumed, therefore, that it was going to be won by one of those airplanes. However, um, we looked at the weather and we figured that we would only fly when we had either minimum headwinds or if we got a you know we'd sit and look and we spent a week prior to the race pouring over the forecast and then on the race day every day 
looking at the forecast, looking at what was happening on the day and looking at the forecast for the next day or two days out, trying to figure out where we're going to pick up least headwinds or tailwinds. And um, our strategy of holding back really worked because we ended up, out of the nine legs, we ended up with seven out of the nine with tailwind conditions. Brilliant. And that put us a whole four months per hour ahead of um, our nearest competitor. That's amazing. And only yeah, five aircraft of the fleet of 50 over aeroplanes, only five aircraft beat their handicap speed. Wow. But we did have a few uh, mechanical issues along the way. So when I arrived in the US, we discovered that the aircraft hadn't flown for a year because um, uh, the owners had had medical issues, so they were unable to fly it. So it had been in for its annual, but had been sitting in the hangar. So when we got there, um, we discovered that the turn coordinator had decided it didn't want to work anymore. And so we took it off to, off to maintenance, got the turn coordinator uh, repaired. But while we were there, the groundie said to me, did you know your starter's still engaged? And I went, oh, really? So we pulled it off, and sure yeah. enough, it was. And so it, had, uh, it needed replacing. And when they pulled the cowls off, they discovered yeah. one of the cowling clips had wound itself into the oil cooler. And we were a hairbreadth away of, from having the um, oil spread across the engine. So that was also replaced before we even got to the start. Right. So when we got to the start, we were all happy. We lined up on start day and ready for our start. The engine would not start. The starter would not engage. Yeah. So we had to pull out. We had three hours to get a repair done. Otherwise, we would have been out of the race. Um, the FBO did not have spares at hand. So I said to them, right, pull, pull the starter off. Have a look at it, see how damaged you think it might be, and put it back on. And if it starts, we'll go. By which time we had identified that instead of stopping as we had hoped to do at our first, at the end of our first leg, we should continue to the end of the second leg, which took us into Indianapolis, which is a, a, a decent sized um, spot, and they had great maintenance facilities and spares. So by the time we got the aircraft started on day one, we flew through to Indianapolis and um, they determined that, yep, the starter had definitely needed to be replaced. But in actual fact, it was the starter adapter or solenoid, starter solenoid, that needed to be replaced. Now, in the 185, uh, sorry, 182, that's right on the back of the engine. So having ordered the parts in, when we arrived there on day two, on the morning of day two, went into the hangar, and here's the aeroplane sitting in the middle of the hangar, and here's the engine sitting on a dolly hanging off the front of the aeroplane wow. because they pulled the engine out to get the um, starter adapter out. So Goodness that me. delayed us for another day. Um, and we headed off late on day two, to, as I say, to catch up with the fleet in Bemidji at the end of day two, by which time all, all of the fast aircraft who had decided that they were going to just go for it had actually finished the four-day race. Wow. Mm. 
So it's it quite an adventure. That's a, that's an amazing story, and it's uh, very very reminiscent of the full noise story that we've been following yes, in the past yes. week. So it's great. It's great. Who was the co-pilot? Who was with you? So my co-pilot is a young lady called Mackenzie Kreutzinger, who I met at the Air Race Classic when we were both um, volunteering last year because I didn't fly the race last year, yep. and she was recommended to me by um, the head of school uh, at Champagne as being a young woman who's interested in, in racing. So uh, we spoke briefly a year ago, and then I think we again a week before the race started this year. Um, and she was absolutely fantastic. She ran um, our, all our social media for us. She, as I say, did, took on the... The, the role of co-pilot really well. She did all my radio calls for me, um, all our hotel bookings. She is a fantastic co-pilot. Um, and in fact, we're looking to go back and race again next year as a team. I like to take on young pilots who are just um, learning to fly because an opportunity are you guys getting we're, right? Are you guys getting yeah, we're getting a, a lot of interference. I think it's coming from Mike. Uh, I've actually been muted for a long time, so. Well, it's it's flashing it, like it's coming from you, but um, that's weird. It's stopped now. Okay. okay. <laughs> that's bizarre. It's uh, just every time you start to speak, D, it sort of comes over top of you. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll turn, I'll turn my volume down a bit and see if that helps. Yeah, it might have been some sort of feedback. Possibly. I was thinking either that or it was your curry dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so my, my co-pilots have, um, have, I generally um, try and bring a new co-pilot who's never raced before into racing. So, um, so it gives them an opportunity to, to go with somebody that's experienced. Um, yep. And then, so, um, co-pilots I've had previously um, my first one she had just passed her PPL when she raced with me and she went on to become an airline pilot um, my second from the college, from the same college where I, I met Mackenzie Alice had just finished her commercial rating when she flew with me but being from middle America she'd never flown on a day where there was cloud in the sky, she'd never flown <laughs> over water she'd never flown near a mountain all of which wow. we encountered along with um massive thunderstorms that year so it was a huge learning curve for her she then went on to race a college team as its captain um several years later and um she came in second in the year she raced a college team okay wow. um and this year um mackenzie um, as I say, she she came to me. She's at um, college in Florida and doing her aviation um, degree down there. She's on a, a softball scholarship, so she's a, a sportswoman, and um, and so she understood about strategy, um, but she's also really competitive. So she she we work really well together and. Um, and she, and she 
she I think she learned a lot about being resilient and never giving up because it, we had one thing after another after another um, and so we we worked we worked well together we had some strategies that worked and we kept to our we kept to our strategy and I think it, it's one of those things that either it was going to work for us or it was or we would be blasted out the, the back door but but you have to make a decision about how you're going to run a race and everybody has to make race their own race. So um, this year it worked out for us. Mm. Oh, that's brilliant. Did you not have to, did you not have to, did, did you not have to have compulsory stops at night or could you, were there any compulsory stops or? Okay. So we have to, so it's a point to point race. So um, you just, you know, shortest distance between two spots is a straight line. Um, a lot of the teams use um, autopilot. We, the aircraft we fly doesn't have autopilot. So um, um, when we do the handicap flights, if you have autopilot, you must fly it with on autopilot. So a lot of, particularly the the newer aircraft and the college teams, they all have autopilot in their aircraft, and you know they're full Garmin one thousands, and it's got all the gear on board. Mm. Uh, but for all of that. Um, you know, it's still you still have to choose what time of day, what height. It's a VFR by day race, so we all have to be back on the ground by a specific time each day. We're crossing time zones, flying across the US, so you just have to be cognizant mm. of that. Um, and then, yeah, so so really, it's it's about the pilots working the conditions of the day, deciding whether they're going to fly low or high. So my, my, my co-pilot, for example, she'd never flown VFR minimus uh, in terms of, um, you know, height above the ground. She, she'd only mm. 6,000 feet in her training. So, you know, on um, some legs, we're up over 10,000 feet. Um, so all of these are new experiences. Um, and, and in the heat of the summer, so you do not fly with the air vents open. Really, um, yeah. but what we do we do carry. Um, I will always make sure I've got a small uh, chili bag and a moist cloth, and so particularly our last legs, which were down in, in sort of Texas and Oklahoma, it was pretty hot by the time we got to the end of the race, and so we we flew at least one of those legs with um, damp cloth across the top of the head and the back of the neck, um, just to keep our temperature wow. stable, so that we could have a you know keep keep cool in the cockpit so do you, do you fly with the the vents closed just so that you go a little bit faster absolutely okay no drag is you know you're trying to minimize drag wow. here wow. wow um you know we we polish the airplane um before every flight and then debug it after every flight wow so yeah it sounds like hard work it is. <laughs> but you know, it's it's also it's a lot of fun because um, on day one, day one on the first takeoff is the the only time that we take take off as a group in sequence. So we start off with race number one through race number whatever. So we were race thirty nine, and um, and that race order is not by speed; it's by whoever enters first. So the first leg oh, is wow. really exciting because you've got the faster aircraft over, overtaking the slower aircraft. And generally speaking, 
during some of the legs, there will ultimately be dual flybys. So a flyby for our timing is at 200 feet across the airfield. Wow. AGL. Um, and so if you get a multiple flyby, it's really exciting being on the ground watching it. Um, it's also quite exciting being an aeroplane doing a dual flyby with another racer. Um, and so I have actually seen triple flybys. So you've got a stack of aircraft side by side or, or just overtaking one another through the, um, through the flyby. Wow, fantastic. Um, yeah. yeah, so it is, it is interesting um, because the flyby runways we use are generally based on our direction of flight. So if, uh, if, that, if the weather is, uh, means that that's not the runway in use for the day, that doesn't matter. We still do the flybys in our direction. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we have to be talking to the other traffic at each airfield that we fly through. Right. Um, and then, uh, so on, on, on our race this year, um, we actually sent a, um, a regional jet around on one of the legs. And on another leg, we had a twin um, pull rolling as towards us as we came by as flyby. The flyby is offset, so, you know, there was never a conflict and we were talking mm, to each mm. other. Um, yep. But, um, yeah, you know, and generally speaking, we have a, um, we have a special authority from um, FAA to, to do these, these flybys. And, um, and so, it, you know, we're briefed for three days before the race starts. We're in briefings on what to expect on the flight, um, if there's any particular issues that may come up, we have a weather, we have a weather briefing, we go mm. through all of the flybys as part of the briefing. They do a first timer briefing. Uh, we, we, prior to doing the race, we had three compulsory um, courses that we had to do online. So one of them was about um, flying um, close to Washington Airspace. One of yep. them was about density altitude. Oh, wow. Um, and another one was about fronts and frontal activity. So so we take safety really seriously on, on, this, on these races. Um, and then at the start and the finish, we ha generally have a youth aviation event. So we engage with our local communities um, at each at each of the starts and finishes, and then the airfield that we visit along the way, um, they will often have um, local uh, rotary schools come out and watch the races. It's it's a real community um, event. So, sounds really really awesome. So how do we find out more about this? Is, is there a, like is there a website that we can go to? Yeah, absolutely. It is. Airraceclassic.org. Cool. That sounds like hard work. Do you get to see any of the scenery as you go past, or is it all head down? Uh, um, no, we, we did. We did manage a few photographs on route. <laughs> <laughs> did you have a? Uh, did you have any GoPros with you? Did you take any film? Um, I didn't use the GoPro, um, but I did. I did take photographs. Yes. So we okay. do have some okay. photographs, and um, we ran a Facebook page. So our photograph from 
from our Facebook page um, can be viewed. Um, and so our Facebook page is Air Race Classic Kiwi Express. Okay. I'll certainly put that link into the uh, into the show notes. That's cool. I, I knew that you were uh, over there. You said you were going, and uh, I saw a few photos come up on your feed, uh, but I didn't realise that there was a page for it. So that's really neat. Uh, there's also the official Air Race Classic has its own official uh, Facebook page as well. Right. Okay. And uh, <laughs> so that was great. <laughs> And then in July, um, I was fortunate enough to represent New Zealand at the World Precision Flying Champs in Austria. Wow. Um, I didn't do as well there, unfortunately. So I didn't bring any trophy home from that particular event. It's still in racing mode. <laughs> yeah, probably. That was probably the problem, Mike. You know? So going from go fast to going to very slow, you know, with precision flying, it's all about flying plus or minus two two seconds anywhere along the track from where oh. we're going to be. And so we, we wow. flight plan at 70 knots, and then we get out onto the actual conditions, and you have to fly plus or minus two seconds for about an hour and a half, identifying photographs. So it's like orienteering in the sky. Yep. Um, and again, it's uh, I took up um, uh, precision flying, um, prior to New Zealand hosting the event back in the late 1990s. And I got into it uh, through rally flying, which is similar. It's a two-pilot activity, so you have a pilot and a, and a navigator. Um, and it's a lot more sociable rally flying than, than precision. But what I found with precision was the discipline of it has assisted me greatly in improving my, um, my general flying ability, particularly um, when stressed for one reason or another, because it's sim because of the, the need to be um, so precise with your flying, it simulates quite um, a lot of pressure. Yeah. Um, so um, I, it's taught me a lot, and over the years I have, I have to say I've been very thankful for precision flying because... Um, it's given me a lot of confidence to be able to fly um, in different countries and and around New Zealand. You know, I, I feel quite confident about being able to pick up a map and 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 literally fly myself out of almost any situation if if I needed to um, once once disorientated. Because you find that you when you're used to reading a map so closely that you're on the minute you generally find that you don't get disoriented and you don't get yourself misplaced okay. and you're yeah. not flying. You know, with, with all of these new nav aids that we have available to us in the cockpit, um, it is actually taking away from those skills that you learn with, with reading a map and physically looking out the window and identifying where you are. Um, right. And, and I'm, I love the technology that's in the cockpit with the new apps and synthetic vision and all of those things because it is making it safer and safer for pilots. But there is nothing quite like being able to pick up a map, draw a line down it, and navigate yourself down that line. Probably a lost art very shortly, I would have thought. 
Agreed. So, where, where did you originally learn to fly, Dee? Um, I did my my original um, private license at Wellington Aero Club in okay. Windy Wellington. <laughs> but that that alone must be uh, that must add to your uh, skill set, set just uh, flying in and out of Wellington. I'm sure. Well, I guess it's like anything; you get used to what you get used to because um, uh, wind has never bothered me. Probably because right. I learned to fly in that windy condition. But I can tell you, the first time I came to Auckland, I wondered what I'd struck because I, I tell you, in 1995, every day it rained here and the visibility was appalling. Whereas in Wellington, yeah. you know, we have great visibility. You can see from one, you know, forever, generally, the wind just blows all those clouds away. Yeah. <laughs> Wellington and Palmerston North, and that's uh, that's just as windy. So it's never straight <laughs> up and down the runway, so crosswinds were never a problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or crosswind. So did, did did you learn did you learn there, uh, Mike? In Palmerston North. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Where did you do your training uh, initially, Brett? I did well. Actually, I, I learned on gliders in um, in Canterbury where I grew up, and then I uh, and then I did some power flying down there, and and finished finished it off at. Uh, Walking the Air Club with Dee and uh, an Admiral. Okay, cool. Yeah. So uh, you've uh, you've had quite a f uh, interesting few months there, Dee. Is there any other news that you've got uh, from the Catalina side or from Mercer? Um, well, Mercer, we're really excited about Mercer at the moment. Uh, the Go Skydive uh, got themselves up and running um, at the end of last summer season. Um, yep. So they've been finding their feet through the winter and just getting momentum going. Um, so they're really excited about um, the upcoming summer season and um, people are able to come down to Mercer and, and go for a tandem flight with Go Skydive. And then just this last week, um, Carl West established uh, West Aero Maintenance at Mercer. Cool. So uh, we now have a maintenance space, aviation maintenance space based at Mercer, um, along with, uh, the backpackers accommodation that we provide there. So we have a 30-bed backpackers on the airfield. So yep. if anyone wants to bring the aircraft in, they can come in, stay overnight on the field, and um, and then fly on out again. Cool. So um, two, I think it was two years ago that I had you on the live show, and you were saying then that uh, you were trying to get the, the hangar that you... Uh, got from uh Harewood yes. in Christchurch uh, up up there what what happened with that did, did you I, manage to get the hangar up to Auckland I, up to Mercer yeah so so yes we did we shipped all of of those parts up to Mercer um we they've been sitting um for quite some time so we've just spent the last year cleaning them off and prepping them for um being erected um yep. and right at the moment uh we've got a site cleared and the footing base is down, ready to reconstruct the 80 metre by 40 metre hangar, World War II hangar. Wow, brilliant. Awesome. So we're, um, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a, a slow process, but we are progressing. Um, we're really fortunate that over the last couple of years, we've worked quite a lot with drainage on the airfield. So uh, you'll know that we've had quite a bit of rain 
over the winter. Sure yeah. Part of the Waikato is flooded. Uh, so yeah. our grass runway, while it does get wet, um, the light sport aircraft have been able to operate the day after it's been raining. Uh-huh. Winter. That's awesome. Um, the 206, however, with the skydive, um, they've got smaller wheels and a little bit heavier. They, they're finding it still a little bit soft for them. But um, we're fortunate because we've got the seal and the grass. So, so it's an all-weather, year-round airfield. The, right. the 80-metre by 40-metre hangar, that wouldn't uh, coincide with the dimensions of the, of the Catalina by any chance. Just, <laughs> just, just slightly, yes. yes. <laughs> so that, that is uh, still the plan to, uh, to base the Catalina there eventually? Um, once I convince our chief pilot that it's safe to land at Mercer. Or yeah. well, you could do a water landing if it's the winter. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's too much drainage. Yeah. They probably couldn't do a water landing. <laughs> We need to make sure that we've got the, you know, out the um, over a thousand meters to land the um, Catalina, yeah. and um, certainly the airfield itself. We're currently operating at eight fifty meters while we're developing um, and and completing the drainage on on the grass. So we've got a um, displaced threshold at the moment, but um, with the work that's going ahead, we've been really pleased with how the how the airfield is, preparation is improving year on year, and so we'll be back to a thousand meters, over a thousand meters, probably for this summer. Um, and we have we're able to extend thirteen hundred meters um, in time. So we're working on that that runway extension at the moment. Um, right. And so, yeah, it's it's a work in progress. That, that's brilliant. That's really good to see progress happening at, a, at an airfield uh, like this because you don't, I mean, these days airfields seem to be under threat more than anything else. Mm. And it's good to see Mercer's really getting that progress going there. And another one that uh, is a bit closer to me is uh, that's having the same thing as uh, Takofi Airfield, yes. which is re- really going ahead. It yep. is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Mercer's is such a great location, too, for us. Um, we've we've stayed in the backpackers a number of times with, with the aerobatic club, having uh, uh, critiquing and, and and training days at, based at Mercer. And the backpackers are flash. They're they're not what you what you'd consider a backpacker. They're very comfortable, very modern, clean, fantastic facility. Thank you, Mike. Great. No. Great. So uh, the next next step, you'll need a cafe there, I guess. <laughs> uh, well, we've got we we've we've. we've we operate a cafe. It's ah. at the moment. It's been based over the over the winter months um, around um, functions. Um, yep. We hosted the uh, New Zealand Airwomen's Association's annual rally um, at Mercer in June of last year, um, and we're able to cater for a hundred people there oh, in great. the middle of winter, which was fantastic. So I was delighted about that. So we um we have um we have a local chap who is going to be getting the cafe open for the summer on a regular basis, so open to the public. Um, yep. And so that's 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 all just coming together for this coming flying season. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, do you guys think you can beat that story of uh, of these? Have, have, you, have you been uh, nope. have you been doing anything interesting lately? <laughs> Or, or Brett? No, not a chance. I, in fact, I was just telling, talking before the show that uh, 
um, I'm a part of a syndicate that owns uh, the Giles 202 Nut, and um, we've we've had a we've had a, a shocking couple of years with um, we've lost a couple of canopies uh, each time. It seems to take more than 12 months to to get replacements, and uh, we just got it back, got the aircraft back for a couple of months uh, last uh, over the summer, and um, Unfortunately, we had a bit of a, well, the aircraft had a bit of an altercation with the top of the hangar door, the propeller, oh. Um, oh. Uh, at the top of the uh, top of the hangar door, and split the edge of the tip of the propeller, so it had to come off and be sent back to Germany for uh, for repairs or replacement and balancing, and uh, and then we've only just found out that because it's a it's, it's propeller damage, the um, insurance company is requiring a bulk strip of the engine, so. Oh, I haven't done oh. much flying in the last in quite a while, and uh, I think I'm going to be landbound, earthbound for a, a couple of months yet. So uh, yeah, no, it's, um, no, no flash stories for me. But you know, the last the last decent flying I did was probably back at the uh, at the um, at the Langley Brian Langley or the Langley Marshall competition back in uh, in February um, uh, up at North Shore. But um, yeah, no, after that, you know, not much at all really. Okay. Well, that's a shame. Um, can, can you tell us? Uh, I haven't ever had a um, an air traffic controller on the show before, and can you just give us a little bit of uh, what it's like to be an air traffic controller? Because it's uh, it's one of those things that every uh, you know every kid knows that there's a there's a guy controlling airports, and you know most airports have some sort of control and. Uh, yeah, but we don't really know much about what what it's about. Yeah, we're not the guys that stand in front of the airplane and wave the bats. <laughs> yeah, most people, or a lot of people, seem to think that that's who the air traffic controllers are. But you know, we're the guys that sit in the in the towers and the radar centres around the country, um, and basically make sure that your 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 commercial flight is protected from the time it uh, starts until the time it shuts down and you get off at the other, at, at your destination. Um, so there's different types of air traffic controllers. I'm a tower controller, so I work in Auckland Tower, um, and it's our job to get the aircraft from the gate, uh, taxi down to the down to the runway and off off the runway airborne before we pass it over to um, over to terminal controllers who get them, who basically look after the aircraft through their climb phase, and um, at which stage they're then passed on to area controllers. Who uh, look after the aircraft and and, um, and crews, and it goes back to they they usually start the the initial part of the descent with area as well, um, and then they get handed off to a another terminal controller that is looking after the airspace around your destination. They um, certainly for Auckland if they if they're inbound to Auckland, there's a lot of sequencing done um, uh, to get the aircraft you know all stacked up in a nice long line of uh, of arrivals. So that when they get to Auckland, we can clear them all to land. We make sure that the uh, the runway is is, is clear and serviceable, um, and um, we get them from basically a ten mile final onto the ground and back to the gate without bumping into anyone else or having anyone else get in the road. Um, okay. Interesting job. I mean, if you've got any interest whatsoever in, air, in, in aircraft, then it's fantastic to sit in the tower and look out the window and, and watch airplanes all day. You know, it's it's, it's hardly a job. It's a, it's an interest. <laughs> um, certainly. Um, Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you get there, and yeah, you know, there's nothing better than watching a 747 depart. You know, they're, they're, they've still got to be one of my favourite aircraft. Um, out of Auckland, the um, the Air New Zealand 747s, when they were operating, um, two three is the, is the predominant runway out of Auckland, so it's sort of heading to the southwest. 
And of course, most of the seven fours used to go up to up to the states, and so that usually required a a, a turn to head sort of northeast, really. Um, and it was it, it, it always it, it was always up to me to well, was one of the things that I that I liked doing was to get an early turn for them, so they'd get airborne, and do an early left turn, and, and depart. And the the pilots always used to I knew a few of them. They always used to say, uh, tell me, oh, you know, thanks for thanks for getting that early turn. It got us got us sort of on, on our way a little earlier than flying you know, ten miles before they got the turn. And I'd, I'd always reply and say, you know, that was that was that wasn't for you. That was for me. There's nothing like seeing a seven four seven turning at five hundred feet and uh, <laughs> so for anyone that's got a that's got an interest in aviation, um, then you know, to sit in a in a little ivory tower and watch airplanes all day is just fantastic. It's um, no better job in the world. So for all of those kids that uh, out there, teenagers who are getting told by the teacher that you can't spend your life staring out the window, how do they get into it? How do they get into uh, being an air traffic One of the problems with, with uh, air traffic control is it's not something you can do straight out of school. Um, there's a minimum age requirement, I think it's either 20 or 21, before you can hold, a, hold an air traffic controller's licence. Um, and so... Most people go off and do something else for a for for a short time before they uh, before they get into the job. I myself, I had a, a completely different career. I was a, a computer analyst for uh, ten or twelve years before that drove me completely crazy, and I decided to to find a job that I actually liked. Um, and having been a pilot since I was sixteen, I've soloed on a couple of days after my sixteenth birthday and got my PPL uh, about a month after my seventeenth birthday. Um, you know, it, it just seemed like a natural, a natural thing that I was going to do something in aviation, and um, and after after earning the big dollars in the in the in the computing industry, I sort of decided to chop my uh, pay by two thirds and go be an air, air traffic controller. So, um, what it, what it involves, um, obviously, there's aptitude testing to start off with, and um, um, it's. It, 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 I guess it, it takes a. It, it's not. It's not rocket science. I mean, it's 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 fairly um, fairly intuitive as to what's required. Um, you need to have a, a pretty good spatial awareness, um, some math skills, although not a lot. Um, you need to. One of the one of the biggest requirements is you need to be able to make a split decision quickly, and then evaluate that decision and change your mind if required. And change your mind again. You know, everyone say, talks about having a plan B. Well, most of us have plans C, D, E, and F for when the you know the, the previous ones don't quite uh, pan out the way you want them to. Um, so flexibility, um, good communicator, um, an interest in aviation. Although not a lot of uh, it used to be that uh, as part of the air traffic controller training, you'd be given a, a, a pilot's license as well, taken through um, training up to PPL. But they stopped that. Oh, probably 25 years ago, I think. So um, now there are fewer and fewer air traffic controllers that are actually pilots. Okay. Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a great job. It's um, it's certainly one that you can travel with. Uh, there's a lot of guys that I know have been to the sands over to Dubai and um, Abu Dhabi and places like that. People go to Canada. Had a couple of friends that have, that have gone up and worked in, in Maastricht and, and Eurocontrol. Um, I just stayed back here in New Zealand. I was, I was, I, I never wanted to be a radar controller. I never wanted to sit in a little dark room away from the airport somewhere and look at blips on the screen. I've always wanted to just sit in the tower and, and look out and see the aircraft and get to know a few of the pilots that uh, that you're interacting with. So, right, right. The, the standard model of aircraft controller who goes through does their 
their course in Christchurch for six months, then get sent out to a tower for um, for some on-the-job training. And then uh, once you qualify, you sort of do your time in a, in a regional tower somewhere and then try and head for the radar centre. I never I never did that. I did my, my initial training um, where everyone does it in Christchurch at the college. Um, and then after the after the college, I got sent to Napier and um, qualified in Napier. That's a great little spot. I mean, it's, you know, fine, warm. As Dee was saying, that the, the air is so clear, you can see for 90 miles. You know, we could spot the Saabs inbound from Auckland from sort of 35, 40 miles out. Uh, right. With the naked eye, you know, it's, it's just so clear. I moved from um, from Napier across to, to Hamilton, Hamilton Tower, and um, you struggled to see them sort of 10 miles away. Uh, it's the, just the difference in the in the in the quality of the air was was one of the biggest surprises I found in, in moving. So you know it's uh, it's been a, it's been a good ride so far, and I'm enjoying it so, enjoying it as it goes. Awesome, awesome. Well, thanks very much for that insight into uh, being an air traffic controller. That's fantastic. No problem. So, uh, Brett, what what have you been up to lately? Well, nothing compared to D, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, well, you know, since um, the wind has been really lousy up in Auckland, um, for your listeners, it's been wet and the um, grass, all the grass uh, movement areas and runways have been closed. So it makes warbird flying a little tricky when you've only got one sealed runway and um, lots of westerly winds uh, when the harvards don't like the crosswinds too much. Um, but I've been trying to fly as much as I can in Harvard 65. I, um, um, one reason I bought the aircraft once I sold the Stripe Masters was to... Um, have, well, one have my own. Uh, I'm just owning a, a, a my own warbird. I've got a share in, in, in uh, another Harvard, and um, so I just wanted an aircraft I could jump in and fly. And which, which so what? So really, my rationale is to go fly as much as I can um, in it. And I've been trying to do that over the winter, but it's been a little frustrating. I've done a bit about uh, three three or four weeks ago when the when the, when the, we had the big high of the country. Um, I got probably seven eight hours in, in it, and then. Um, I've had the odd flights, um, um, and then obviously the trip down to Harkia, which was which was great fun. So um, also trying to stay current in um, our formation training up at Warbirds there. So um, yep. I'm, I'm qualified, but it's something I, I want to keep current, and um, it tends to be, um, uh, you know, somebody just needs to organise it, so I've sort of taken on that role. Um, not not the fast coordinator, but sort of reorganising the guys to do some fast formation flights, um, which is great fun. and um, I really enjoy, you know, two ship, four ships. So, yeah, that's been my focus, really. Just get out and fly Harvard. Fly, fly, fly. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, and, uh, yeah, is there anything else on the horizon, or are you still sort of trying to decide what you're going to go on to next after the after the Harvard? Oh, well, I'm going to get the Harvard. Um, that's a long-term hold. Um, what next? Yeah, I I've got a few plans, but uh, I haven't decided on anything at this stage. Right, right. Cool. This is Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Here's Peter Johnson. We're in front of the Merlin. Can you tell us a little bit about the aircraft? What aircraft did you fly before? Uh, Suhoi 22. Right, okay. That's quite an interesting aircraft. Mm-hmm. What was that like to fly? Faster. Yeah. <laughs> Gareth Stringer. Make no bones about it. This is still a very capable aircraft. The cockpit's very cramped, you've got leg restraints on, you're sat on a seat that's got explosives in it. Tim Robinson. Uh, also the A400M, got to go inside and uh, have a poke around with. 
just taken me on the trip of a lifetime in a F-18F Super Hornet. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of extended. Extended. Um, well, with, uh, if you've got nothing else, we can move on to the next uh, segment. And that's uh, what's on the panel's minds. And uh, basically, this is just an opportunity to raise anything that you think uh, needs to be pointed out to the public, or whether it's good or bad, or, or uh, positive or negative, uh, political or legislative, and uh, just highlighting any safety concerns or anything like that um, from the whole spectrum of Kiwi, Kiwi aviation. So is there anything on your minds that you think needs to be raised or pointed yeah, out? Yeah, I've, 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 I've got a start of a 10. Um, <laughs> drones, RPASs, UAVs, UASs, oh, whatever yeah. they call them, um, they, there is going to be an accident sometime in the not-too-distant future. That's just a matter of, of when. Uh, right. They, you know, there are, there are some pretty clear and, and, and concise rules, you know, Rule Part 101 and 102 um, on, you know, that govern how you're allowed to operate these things. And I've got one myself, so um, I'll sort of come at it from, from both sides of the fence. But, you know, it's, it's, well, it's not quite daily, but at least once a week we get reports of, of near misses with, you know, with big airliners. And, um, oh, okay. Yeah, so there have been some, you know, there have, a few weeks ago there was a, a probably, I'm probably not, a, not allowed to tell you exactly the, the whole details of it, but a, a, an Australian-bound... Um, aircraft carrying, what is a 737? Well, it's a 737, how about that? Went underneath the drone at 1,900 feet on departure. Wow. Uh, out, out of Auckland. You know, things like that is just, yeah. And, and some of these things are big enough that if they get sucked into the wrong place or, or hit the wrong part of an aircraft, they'll do, a, they'll do a fairly substantial amount of damage. You know, while they're not particularly heavy, they've got metallic parts that, you know, sort of seem to, Tend to act more like uh, missiles rather than you know a bird or something that's really soft and fluffy hitting an aircraft. So yeah. now it's just it's it's disappointing to see that uh, that a lot of the, of people buy these things and operate these things without knowing what the regulations and 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 and, and don't seem to think about um, how dangerous they could be if they were hit by an aircraft. Or it's um, it is a worry. And yeah, you know, mark my words, there is going to be an accident at some stage. You know, it's, it's, I think it's too slow on 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 getting onto that particular mm. issue. You know, they they're still sold as toys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, agree. Yep. I mean, um, and I, when I when I bought mine, um, you know, I was I wandered into a shop in uh, in, in a certain city, and they the the, the the person sort of who was selling it to me got one out and took, walked outside and took it off and flew it around the place, and I'm thinking. Well, this is actually inside the control zone, and he's gone, you know, pretty close to 400 feet up, um, just to sort of demonstrate to me the, the the abilities of the thing. And I'm pretty sure that's illegal. And I won't say where I bought it or from whom or what city it was, but mm. um, you know, and that, that's the sort of thing. I bought it, and there was in my one there was a little pamphlet tucked in the in, in the bottom of it that you could have thrown away because you didn't see it that sort of pointed you in the right direction. But if you buy one of these things off the internet internationally, you're certainly not going to get the, any sort of direction on 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 how you operate them and what the rules you know are about. Mm. So it is wow. a problem. Yeah. 
So, so these ones that you're getting reported uh, where airliners are seeing them, do you think that they're just completely oblivious to the airliners, or are they using the drones to try and film the airliners? I, I don't I don't know. Um, there was some great, well, I say great in inverted commas, footage a, a couple of, about a year or maybe 18 months, maybe longer than that ago, of a champion turkey who was who was flying around, flying his drone around the, the main you know, international airport of Istanbul. And he was, you know, taking shots of airliners arriving and departing. He was over the top of them. He looked like he was probably about a thousand feet over one of the thresholds at one stage with, you know, arrivals and departures going underneath him. Um, yeah. And then he sort of flew it around the VOR a, while, a bit and then it flew around a couple of other nav aids that were there. You know, who knows what sort of, what sort of, um, um, yeah, in, uh, interference it was causing to the to the nav aids that all these aircraft were operating off. Um, yeah. I think that guy actually got found out, and he was stupid enough to publish his name as, as well as the the footage on YouTube. And you know, people seem to I think uh, the local authorities did catch up with him. But you just wonder what some of these people are thinking. It's like shining a a, 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 um, a laser into the at aircraft. You know, that's incredibly dangerous, and people just don't think about it. Yeah, yeah, it's stupid. In fact, I think that with the laser thing, it's happened more since the media started telling mm. people not to do it. You know, it's uh, kind of <laughs> yeah. The trouble with with the laser thing is that they tend is that the the people that get caught and a lot of them do get caught. Um, you know, get a get the old slap over the back of the hand with a wet bus ticket and and sent on their way. Um, yeah, yep. There needs to be some high profile, big fines or jail time or whatever you want to do. I don't know what's appropriate, but you know. Just not a slap over the back of the hand with a wet bus ticket. Yeah, it's like it's like the system wants to wait until an airliner crashes and and everybody on board dies, and then they'll do something about it. Yeah. Uh, ra- rather than you know yeah, make it make it something that everybody's aware of. Don't do it. Yeah. So that's my hobby horse. <laughs> mm, yeah. Are there any other hobby horses in the paddock? <laughs> uh, no. no. <laughs> well, I think um from a from a war with my warbird hat on, we need some more. Uh, ladies flying warbirds, females. Yes. We don't have enough. We don't have very few, and I think it's a crime. I think, um, I think you know, yeah, it's not just a male thing. It should be a uh, female thing as well. You don't have to be a male to fly a warbird. You don't have to be, as as Liz Needham point, you know, shows us. You don't have to be a male to fly a Spitfire or a P40. Get into it. Absolutely. And I'm sure, I'm sure D agrees with that. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to to stop in at Sweetwater, Texas, the home of the wasps. Oh, I used to. Um, on on this last trip, and you know these young women were just you know they're fresh, just new private pilots when when the war came along, and um, and they had this opportunity to train. You know they've only just recently been recognised for um, for their input, and and some of those women they flew every single different type of warplane that was built. Mm-hmm. Yes. To deliver it to the to um, to a place where it could be exported. Um, so all over the USA, they were used for demo flights. Um, you know, even the largest bombers were being flown by young women in the 1940s. So I watched a great um, documentary on YouTube a, a couple of weeks ago, and I can't remember what it was called. And it was all about these young women that were delivering them all over the all over the uh, the, the place. And I I'll, I'll try and search it out and give it to Dave, and you you can put it in the, the the link in the in the in the show notes because it was a fantastic documentary on that very subject. Great. Well, you know, I've always felt that 
um, aviation is a is a fantastic occupation for young women um, because the hours are flexible. You know, mm. Um, mm. it is. It, you know, if, in the airlines, it is shift work. Um, as someone once said to me, you know, I'm a I'm a um, uh, heavy machine operator from South Auckland. Um, <laughs> but the point is um, that young women fly airplanes and. Interestingly, they, they maintain that we have a more cautious mindset uh, in terms of safety first, but I don't know. I don't really want to get into that particular conversation. No. Um, but I do know that, that if you like driving a car, then you're going to love flying an aeroplane. Agreed. Agreed. I just think I think it's a, a, a completely agree with you, D. I think it's a great vocation, and you know all aspects of aviation, not just getting your um, CPL to, to um, join the air, uh, join the airliners, or getting you know getting ATPL, but uh, flying all the other things. You know, flying um, you know warbirds, flying vintage aircraft, flying microlights. I don't know. Um, you know, all the whole gambit of things. Flying tail draggers. You know, that's. You know, it's a real yeah. point. You're a better gear craft. It's you know, we should be encouraging all walks of life, all, all types of people to, to get in, get into it. It's not just an exclusive club. No, and I mean today we're really fortunate with the light sport aircraft. Yes. Um, and yes. microlights. You know, microlights are never have never been safer. Mm. Mm. Um, and they're a yeah. great way to start. And gliding, just go. There is, I don't know if there's a better place in the world to learn to you know to, to glide. We have a fantastic country for aviation in fact one of the best countries in the world in terms of, of of where we can go where and when we can go um our airspace is is reasonably free uh which is why the likes of ctc or l3 come and set up base here and train their pilots from europe yeah because mm. because mm. we have you know we have in, interesting weather and uh um, and for um, training purposes and general aviation, lots and lots of free airspace to play around in. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, that's uh, that's some very good uh, things that you guys have brought up. Um, is there anything else before we move on? Nope. None for me. No. Cool. Well. Uh, We'll move on to the next section, which is Great Escapes, and that's uh, any aviation books or films or television or radio or podcasts that you've uh, you've been indulging in just recently that uh, you think you'd like to share uh, with other people. So, uh, what have what have you all been uh, reading or listening to or watching? I've discovered uh, NASA.gov. Um, and I, I must be a bit of a space geek as well. I um, I actually watched, was it last week, the end of last week, or the week before, when uh, the Cassini mission, um, ah. Saturn, uh, finally yep. reached the end of its 20-year journey, and um, um, there was just some fantastic images. Uh, yeah, NASA got, what, what NASA does, and there's a lot of, a lot of stuff on that website, and you could spend days and days and days browsing around. They have live feeds from the space from the you know, International Space Station. 
Um, the, the, I actually watched the loss of signal live of the, of the Cassini spacecraft live on uh, YouTube or Facebook or, or something, and you know, and and, he, and saw the last signal that was received from the spacecraft before it plunged into the atmosphere and burnt up, you know, never to be seen of again. Um, right. Yeah, no, that was that was uh, as a dot gov. You could spend a lot of time in there. I have to say, I was uh, planning to watch that Cassini live feed. I had read about it the night before, uh, and I was thinking, oh, yes, I'll, I'll watch that. And then, of course, it was the same morning that uh, Graham Frew had his first race at Reno, and I was watching that and completely forgot about the space thing. Uh, so I, I never did see it. But yeah. uh, I was the other way around. I knew about, I knew about Graham, and I, and I got hooked into the Cassini thing and, didn't, and, and, and missed his first race. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Actually, just uh, talking about space, I discovered a few weeks ago on uh, I, I listen to a lot of the BBC podcasts. Oh yes, and, yes. Uh, uh, in their section, they've got uh, an actual sort of space section, and so there's all sorts of stuff that goes back, you know, several years, and you can go back and listen to them. And I started listening to some of those documentaries, and they're fantastic. Really, really yeah. good stuff. From from people like astronauts that have you know been up in the space station to uh, older history, talking about some of the first astronauts. There's one there with uh, one of the pilots from Apollo 11, uh, astronauts from Apollo 11, yep. and there's even uh, an interview with um, Anthony Daniels talking about playing C-3PO and stuff like that. So, <laughs> um, uh, but you know, it's just, I mean, the BBC does documentaries so well, and um, this is all from mostly from uh, BBC Radio Four or from uh, BBC World, and and they've got them all in this one area where you can find all their space documentaries. So I'll put a link to that uh, up on the. Yeah. Oh yeah, uh, Space Geek. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll watch them all. <laughs> mm, cool. Well, I'm gonna um, uh, I'm gonna plug something. I know it called me old fashioned, but I I read a book. Recently, I know it's actually paper, paper. (laughs) (laughs) And because I'm my involvement with Wickles, I thought I'd better better promote the the paper stuff, you know. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. Actually, um, I was interesting book, and I'm not going to ruin it. It's called The Woman Who. It's not a thing tonight, but it is called The Woman Who Flew for Hitler. And um, and excuse my French and my German pronunciation. Um, it's about two key um key pilots of um for the and they're the only two female test pilots in um, nazi germany um from you know 1930 early 1930s to 1945 um one was melita von staffenberg uh, it, 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 it sort of covers their life in um in parallel if you in parallel if you like um throughout the period of um of um really mostly the uh, 1930s through the 1945 and Melita von Stauffenberg, you might recognise that name. That is Klaus's von Klaus von Stauffenberg, the uh, the, the uh, German officer who made the uh, assassination attempt on Hitler in 1944. And the other one was the other lady profiled in the book is Hannah Reich. I spelled mm-hmm. her last name R E I T S C H. The book is called The Woman Woman Who Flew for Hitler, and it's a fascinating, fascinating read. And I'm not trying to I try not to give too much away, but one was the uh, poster child for um, for Nazi Germany, um, blonde hair, blue eyed. One was um, obviously a member of the uh, 
family who tried to assassinate Hitler and um, and um, was half Jewish. Um, she married into the von Stauffenberg family, and um, the contrast couldn't be more um, uh, between their two lives couldn't be um, uh, more stark and um, uh, and um, you know uh, really quite interesting in how they, how they how they developed through the war. I mean, both women took extreme risks testing aircraft. Um, for the war effort, and you know, um, uh, Hannah um, tested the uh, comet, and um, oh, you know, they call it uh, the the uh, uh, rocket-powered aircraft um, they developed, and um, so it's really fascinating. So uh, I thoroughly recommend it. It's called the the woman who flew for Hitler. Um, really interesting. Excellent, excellent. It's a book, too. A book. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I actually did hear a podcast about that. Uh, I think it was uh, Dan Snow interviewed. Yes, he, the... he did. He did one. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it was really interesting. Just listen to that. So uh, I thought at the time, yeah, people who are into this sort of thing would love that book. Yeah. Fascinated. Really fascinated me. Mm. Uh, Dee, have you got anything? I, I have to say I have a, a very large pile of books next to the bed, which I never read. Um, um, and and I'm not sure why I collect books because I really don't have the time to read them. Um, but um, I I haven't I the, the film I've been trying to think of the name of the film. Um, it's about the the women who work for NASA. Oh yes, um, Hidden Figures, isn't it? Hidden, Hidden Figures. Figures. Yes. I love. That's a great movie. That movie. Um, yeah, great movie. You know, it, 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 yeah, it, yeah. I, I, I like, I like that movie a lot. Great, great. I'm, I'm definitely going to have to watch that film because I keep hearing lots of good things about it. So, that, that's on my list. I will, I will watch that. But uh, you talk about I, the space race, um, and young people. I think the thing that 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 our young young ones need to be aware of is. You can now be a rocket scientist in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Lab. Yep, yep. And and you know, Rocket Lab are just are uh, just amazing. They, you know, a group of young people, generally under thirty five, um, all of whom are have got fantastic brains on them, creating creating history. Here in in New yeah. Zealand and and getting us part of the into that space race. It's it's pretty remarkable, really, isn't it, for little old New Zealand to have its own space race, uh, its space industry. It yeah. is, and it is rocket science. Woohoo! <laughs> Absolutely. So, so we do we do breed rocket scientists. Um, yeah. And the other the other thing about NASA, obviously, is the balloon activity out of out mm. of uh, Wanaka, which I think is just awesome project as well. So, you know, we are very fortunate down here to to have a lot of scientific activity going on um, in the in those areas. Yep, absolutely. And of course, NASA's also had their seven four seven out here um, several times, uh, Sophia and. Uh, I had uh, one of their team on the show uh, probably just over a year ago, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, and I think they got a DC-8 or something like that as well yeah. uh, that they that they have brought out here. So yeah, there's there's stuff going on. And and I actually, oh, I'm going to just say my old next door neighbour Pat Monk, who um, I've mentioned a few times on the forum, he designed the uh, CD4 air trainer and the Cresco. 
he was a rocket scientist. He before he came to New Zealand, he worked at Woomera uh, in Australia um, with with the British uh, rocket um, lab there, and was an actual rocket scientist. So uh, he was a fascinating guy. Mm. Excellent. It just shows yeah. you in New Zealand, you know, uh, population of four million people in the bottom of the planet that you, you know, you can become a rocket scientist. You could fly a Harvard or a Spitfire. You know, you can the the uh, you know the opportunities are immense in New Zealand. Yeah, if you that's right. if you can dream it, you can be it. Yep, I Absolutely. I completely agree with you. We we really live in God's zone down here. We mm. we mm. really do. And it's so timely to, to say that, too, after we've just gone through an entire uh, election process mm. where there's people out there saying how bad New Zealand is. <laughs> it's like, come on, this country is so much better than everywhere else Yeah, in so many ways. And, and we're, we're very, very lucky. Even if the politicians uh, do try to muck it up. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, I, I, for, for my great escapes, uh, a couple of things that I want to mention is um, recently, uh, I think it was the, the last episode for uh, Extended Podcast out of Britain, uh, I really enjoyed uh, their episode that focused on the Ferry Barracuda, which was the uh, naval uh, bomber, uh, to torpedo bomber and bomber from World War Two that uh, the Royal Navy had. Um, fascinating to uh, listen to uh, historian Matt Willis talk about it and also fascinating uh Peter Johnson, the um, the host, uh, had an old interview with his father, who uh, flew in them. And um, no, it's just a really, really good episode, and and I recommend that one. Um, and another thing that I only uh, a couple of nights ago watched online actually uh, was uh, an old film from 1955 starring Gary Cooper that I'd never even heard of before, and it's called The Court Martial of Billy Mitchell. And uh, Billy Mitchell was, this is a true story, Billy Mitchell was the chap who, um, in the 1920s, uh, early 1920s, he was the head of the uh, American Air Force. And I, I thought it was very timely, because last week the US Air Force uh, uh, had its 70th That's birthday right. from, from becoming a, a separate service. Now, way back in the 1920s, he was trying to make it a separate service. It didn't happen until 1947. Um he was trying to point out to both the army and the navy and also the politicians uh, that an air force was something worth funding, worth having, and it would lead the way. And uh, every time he opened his mouth, they tried to shut him down. And um, basically, this this film shows in 1921 uh, they had a a captured German ship from World War One that they uh, they asked his men to bomb from 4,000 feet and, and pretty much uh, clapped out World War I uh, bombers. I think they were DH-4s or something like that. I, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, and, of course, he broke the rules and came in at uh, 1,000 feet with bigger bombs and actually sank the ship. <laughs> and uh, so they, they really took a dislike to him and uh, busted him from general down to colonel and stuck him in a, in, in a desk job in Texas. And... So eventually he went to the press and uh, basically said that, uh, that the Air Force has been stymied and, and because of the old equipment, uh, lots of guys were dying unnecessarily. And he got court-martialed for going to the media. And so this whole court-martial plays out uh, 
through the through the film, and it's it's really interesting. But one of the most interesting things that happened is they had letters that had been writing to the Defence Department over the years. They were reading out excerpts, and one of them was in the early 1920s. He predicted that Japan would send aircraft carriers, sit them 150 miles off the uh, off the islands of Hawaii, and they'd fly in two waves and bomb uh, Pearl Harbor. And um, and sink the fleet, yeah. and and this is really interesting that he predicted that in the 1920s, and I thought, oh come on, this is this this can't be true, and I looked it up, and sure enough, he did predict it. Wow. So I'm I'm actually wondering, uh, did he predict it, or or did he plan did, it? <laughs> or, no, or, or did the Japanese read the transcripts yes, of this? <laughs> yeah, go, oh, this is a really good idea. Yes, yes. Because <laughs> of course, at that stage, the Japanese were actually allies. You know, they'd been allies in World War One. They were still allies in the 1920s. So uh, it, it was uh, it was outlandish to even consider that. So it's really, really interesting. So that's uh, that's my great escapes. Um, yeah, and uh, actually, one other thing that I did do. Uh, I was very privileged to be invited down to a Hakia, uh by Number Three Squadron last month, and uh, went down and uh, visited there, and uh, was a guest of honour at uh, at a, um, a dining and dinner that they had there to mark 75 years of um, of the Battle of Guadalcanal, and and that was brilliant. But while I was there, I caught up with uh, Brendan Deer, and uh, we sat down. And I, I recorded a small uh, interview with him um, about his views of the film Dunkirk, because yeah. you you may have seen in the yeah. uh, in the media that uh, Tom Hardy was supposedly playing his uncle. Uh, I'm sitting here with Brendan Dare in the Big and Hill Hangar. Hi, Brendan. Hi. How are you, Dave? Great. Um, I just want to ask you about uh, what you thought of the Dunkirk film and the and the connection there with um, your uncle Al Dare. Oh, I thought it was a great movie. I really enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to seeing it again. In fact, I'm looking forward to the Blu-ray release with all the extras on it, I'm sure, which will be pretty good, what I've seen on YouTube so far. Yeah, it was a good movie. I was uh, very impressed with what he did with no CGI. Yep. Uh, almost no CGI, I think. And um, the amount of resources he had to portray a pretty momentous event. I thought he did a brilliant job, a great movie. And, um, yeah, the connection with the uncle was interesting because... Uh, as, you know, as you know, my uncle was active over the beaches of Dunkirk. He was uh, had his first two um, um, ME109 claims, I think, over Dunkirk, if I remember correctly. And right. uh, it was just interesting that uh, that website, History versus Hollywood dot com, I think it was, pointed out that he was the most likely sort of pattern for that uh, pilot Hardy, I think it was. But I think what um, Christopher Nolan, the director, was able to do was to amalgamate a whole lot of characters into one yeah. um, because other people like Stanford Tuck and that were active over the Dunkirk beaches and uh, the RAF was very active but not so visible, uh, which was part of the problem. Um, and the uncle's experience of Dunkirk was pretty unique in its own right, you know, having yeah. been shot down and crash landing on the beach and... Uh, managing to get back to England on one of the last destroyers to leave from the South Mole, which is featured in the film, uh, and be back in action 19 hours later. So, uh, wow. yeah, so pretty, pretty interesting. But I thought the movie was tremendous. If it doesn't get uh, the best film Oscar, then there's something wrong with the system. Yeah, I totally agree. And um, I guess uh, an Oscar for 
special effects is probably out of the out of the question because he didn't really use that C CGI stuff that we always see these days. But uh, but possibly um, you know definitely best best film and possibly some of the uh, the other categories he's he's got to got to win it. Oh, I think so. But what I'll be very curious to see, and I suppose is. Um how they did the uh, Spitfire landing on the beach, because when you see the footage on, I think on YouTube, of them filming it from the helicopter, the aircraft doesn't have its wheels down and it doesn't land. So they've done some magic there. Yeah. Um, because I was talking to uh, Sean Perrett yesterday and he, he was speculating that it wouldn't be such a good idea to land a Spitfire on a beach. But uh, it did actually land there. Did it? Yeah. And for the film? Yeah, I've seen uh, Peter Arnold put some... Um, stuff up oh on, great on, i didn't know that yeah, yeah well, that's good to know i'll pass that on and, and it was just at last light sort of thing yeah and um he obviously just landed and then took off again but all um, oh, right just put his wheels down yeah yeah no well, that, i thought that was a great scene you know the whole yeah. thing the way they did use the spitfires and actually it's, it's interesting a number of people i've spoken to that have seen the movie rate the sections with the spitfires to be the best part of the movie yeah um which is which is good actually the other thing too um, I've actually heard people saying, "Oh, they used real German aircraft," and I was thinking, "Well, okay, you can, you you can you know confuse the the Bouchon uh, with the measurement quite easily." But people have said, "Oh, they used a real German bomber." Well, they didn't because no, there's no model, wasn't it? yeah, it was a model, and that in itself is some of the best model work I've ever seen in a yeah. film because it's very very realistic. and the Stukas I think were also were models exactly. As well. yeah, yeah, I've seen coverage of that. Yeah, and I think. Um, yeah, I think he, he, he was very faithful to the... Um, it reminded me a little bit of that, um, I think it was a Czech movie called Dark Blue World. Yes. Uh, where they used um, original Spitfires and that, and yep. there was no CGI... Well, there was no a little bit of CGI with one of the scenes blowing up the train, but uh, the rest of it was just pure magic. Um, yeah, I mean, they obviously used... They turned three Spitfires into nine by, you know, yeah. superimposing and all that. But at the end of the day, they were real aircraft. Because I think if you know the comparison to me is that movie Red Tails, if you've seen right. that, yeah, uh, about the Tuskegee Airmen <laughs> and and the Mustang footage and that. Some of it's good, but when it's not good, it really jars. Uh, it just doesn't look right. That film was a travesty. Yeah, for the huge budget that he used and. Yeah. Anyway, it was just an interesting comparison yeah. how, how to do it. You exactly. One hundred percent CGI versus almost no. I think, well, if not any CGI. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so you had not known before uh, it came out that that there may be some sort of um, use of your uncle's story in the film. Or? Well, as I said, uh, you know, I think he was that character. The pilot, the two pilots were an amalgam of uh, various pilots that. The, the director must have grown up with you know he yeah. he, you know, he grew up in England and he must have um, read all the comics and read all the stories so I think you know you could say that Hardy is an amalgam of you know probably the uncle Stanford Tuck um, any number of pilots uh, and uh, and I don't think he was trying to portray anybody's particular story he was just trying to give an element to the to the day right, right. Um, so you know, I, I didn't know anything about it until somebody pointed out that website that um, and that sort of story took off um, by itself. You know, Did, yeah. uh, my cousin John, uh, who's LD's son, uh, sent me a copy of. I think it was in the Daily Express with the same story. Okay. So yeah, so it sort of it got around, if you like, got yeah. around the world. Uh, that little bit of a story, a little bit of history about the uncle, and um, yeah, I thought it was a nice touch. But but at the end of the day, there were lots of pilots 
on that day. I'm pretty sure only he was the only one that actually ended up on the beach. So. Right. Um, yeah, so his story in its own right is probably a good part of a, any movie. But yeah. and, and unlike the m- movie, he didn't get uh, captured by the Germans at the end. No, no, well, he was injured when he, when he crash-landed, of course, and um, I think the lady, the lady in the cafe on the beach, because, um, you know, that beach where he crash-landed, I, I'm lucky enough to have had the opportunity to go and visit it and have a look, and there's a whole lot of... Um, it's a it's very much like a beach resort you think of it so there's a lot of cafes along there so he was able to go into i think one of the cafes and she managed to stitch his cut up and uh, he either borrowed a bicycle or flogged a bicycle i don't know which and then i think his last bit he got a ride on a truck okay and um got a pretty hostile reception as you know when he got there um and i think that the story behind all of that is a little bit more um a little bit more uh, combative than he he details in his book. It's more gentlemanly in the book, I think. Oh, right. Okay. I think he had to uh, use some of his boxing skills to uh, secure his place on the boat. Wow. <laughs> because, uh, you know, as portrayed in the film and, and in many books, the, the, the soldiers had a, uh, a a huge mindset that the RAF wasn't doing anything, but they were. They were, they were uh, further inland trying to stop the aircraft coming to the beach for one thing yeah and and the other thing is um, w- what we didn't see in the film uh, so much is from what the historians say there was so much smoke from the burning ports yeah that uh, the Spitfires were above the smoke uh, so the soldiers couldn't really see what they were doing no I think you know the, the aerial front I mean you, you've got to think about all those soldiers concentrated on a beach mm. So what they're seeing is what happens immediately around them. Yeah. And as you said, everything was happening inland, further up the coast, yeah. um, you know, um, north of Dunkirk, toward the lower part of Belgium. It was all happening around that whole area there. Yeah. And they were looking at the, um, the the soldiers on the ground were just seeing a small representative sample, if you like, of what was happening. And as a consequence, you know, they, um, they thought, the RAF did nothing so when the uncle turned up on the beach looking to get on one of the ships to get out they weren't very uh, friendly to him at all right. far from it right. and nor were the navy guys so uh, he had to um, requisition his position on the ship I suppose is the best way to phrase it with right. the best way you knew how so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh, as I said B was back on the boat got off at Dover got the train to London down to uh, Elm, Elm Park and back back on base and back flying again 19 hours later yeah. mm. and then into the Battle of Britain after that and yeah yeah several, non-stop really yeah, yeah several more major incidents and, yeah yeah you know, he's, he's lucky I suppose in the sense that he was a reasonably experienced Spitfire pilot before Dunkirk yeah you know because he uh, I think it was March the 6th or 7th I think he picked up his Spitfire from um from down at Eastley, and uh, so he had a bit of Spitfire time. And of course, the, the Dunkirk stuff gave him a lot of experience. Those ones in '54 Squadron, a lot of experience ahead of the Battle of Britain. You know, they'd already been to battle. They knew yeah. how unpleasant it was, and they knew uh, the German tactics, and they knew the German aircraft by then. Exactly. So they... I've even heard that uh, a lot of historians sort of would say that the Battle of Britain began there. That was really the beginning. Yeah, of I think Dunkirk's an unwritten part of the whole thing because, mm. you know, before that you had the, um, you know, you just had the sort of the, almost the, the semblance of war, if you like, because nothing much was happening and nobody was quite sure what was happening. And, um, you know, Dunkirk was an unmitigated 
disaster. So I mean, they sort of um, turned a defeat into a, a, a glorious sort of uh, victory. But at the end of the day, it was a military disaster. Yeah, it, was. Um, it was just a combination of things, you know, particularly um, the Germans were a bit not so aggressive about, you know, the amount of bombing they did on the beach and the sand tended to absorb the explosive force of a lot of the bombs. Yeah. And um, I think Hitler himself, I, I could be wrong, but I think Hitler himself um, stopped the complete sort of attacking of the beach. They just left them to, yeah. So I, I, I'm not too au fait about that whole period, but uh, I think it's good that it's had a lot of attention. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, it's a key part of the RAF experience. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Britain's history too. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You've got a glorious, uh, whatever you call it. Yeah. It's well, a bit like Gallipoli, really. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, Churchill put it well when he said it was a miracle of deliverance. Yeah. He uh, wasn't glorifying it as, 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 a, as a victory, but it wasn't really a defeat as well because they saved the army. So. Yeah, well, I mean, I, it's funny, it's just because last week I had the opportunity to go and look at that... Uh, Great War Exhibition in the Dominion Museum, which was which is stunning, and you know it's compulsory. Both of them, the Tapapa and the Dominion Museum, are compulsory yeah. viewing. Yeah. If you don't, if you're a Kiwi and you haven't been to it, you've got to find a way to get to it, yeah, sort of thing. I agree with that. Yeah, Brilliant. and um, it was just you know Dunkirk experience sort of was in many ways a lot of similarities with Gallipoli, yeah. you know, um, in, in different ways, but the successful evacuation of both was um, you know lots of parallels. Yeah, and then again, again there was uh, Greece and Crete and Singapore. They uh, the, the Royal Navy got quite used to pulling the uh, troops off the, yeah, off the beaches. Yeah, well, really. um, unfortunately, my own father only he lasted two weeks in Greece, and before he was captured up there, so right. he didn't get to get to go to visit any beaches. So right. <laughs> he was uh, he was in that first uh, when the Germans crossed the border into Greece, he, his his group were there to meet them. Oh, didn't right. didn't fare so well, so. Okay. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's an interesting parallel, I, th I thought, between Gallipoli and uh, Dunkirk. Yeah, yeah, definitely, um, definitely. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome, Dave, and it's uh, nice to have you visiting Biggin Hill again. Oh, it's great to be back. <laughs> Cheers. So Have you I'll put seen that in. Yeah. Yes. Did yes. you enjoy it? I loved it. I thought it was. I thought it was different, but I just thought this is come come at it from a real different angle, and I just thought it was brilliant. Oh, cool, awesome. What about you? Did you like it? I I didn't I didn't see it. I missed the start of it, and so decided that I wouldn't see it because I wanted to watch it from start to finish. So we went to see. Uh, Victoria and, and Abdul instead, which started 10 minutes later. So um, <laughs> I have yet to see it, but it's on my to-do list. Ah, right, right. Uh, uh, Mike or Brett, have you seen well, it? I haven't seen it. Um, I heard I heard mixed reviews that some some people that I know loved it and others hated it. And I was thinking, oh, and I really – it annoys me going to aviation movies where they do the aviation part badly. Um, not that I'm saying they did that in this one, and from all accounts, the, the, the filming and cinematography and everything was fantastic, but it, I, I'm a bit of a Scrooge in that if, if I think I might not enjoy something, I sometimes don't go and see it. Mm. I, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I I went with uh, two of my best friends, uh, they're brothers, uh, m myself and my best friend, um, 
loved it, and uh, my best friend's brother hated it, and um, yeah, uh, we almost came to fisticuffs. Wow. <laughs> no, no, not quite, not quite. But yeah, he just absolutely hated it. But um, yeah, there, there is. It is. It's like it's a what what they'd call a marmite film because you either love it or hate it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And as I say, it's really different because there's three different time streams going on, and you're and you're looking at them at different times, uh, and it doesn't make that quite clear at the beginning. You have to work it out as you go along, and uh, uh, you do see little every time it changes scenery, you see a little bit of a title come up, and it kind of reminds you, oh right, this is in the in another time stream now, and uh, so. To get your head around that makes the film a lot better. In terms of the aviation side of it, I thought it was done really, really, really well. Uh, I've never seen an aviation film where they've put the actual actors into the air uh, and done it so well that it looks like they really. Uh, the only other one probably would be Top Gun oh, when they put say, yeah, yeah. yeah when they put Tom Cruise up there and he was really in the aircraft. But this is this is done yeah just a little bit differently and 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 the fact that you know they've got Heinkel 111s and Stukas that even you know looking at it from my my eye, I couldn't tell that they weren't actual Heinkel 111s and Stukas, but I know they were none flying. So um, large models they were apparently. Yeah, done so well. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'd recommend it, and I, I don't know if it's still at the cinema. It probably is, but uh, you if if it if it is, you better get in quick. Yeah, no, I'll I'll, I'll I'm a good day off tomorrow. I'll see what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, cool. Okay. Um, well, the one of the uh, things I ask all my guests on the forum is, what was your most memorable flight or flights? So um, <laughs> I've got one. I'm, I'm sure, yep, go for it. I was um, I was I was only a very short flight. I was uh, just about to leave for an extended um, business trip overseas, and it was the um, middle of winter. And I wanted to fly because I knew I was going away. I wanted to fly the Stripe Master before I, um, before I, um, uh, you know, departed. And I was departing on a Friday night, and um, it was winter. It was Friday morning, and I uh, people are going to criticise me for bad airmanship, but I knew I didn't have full tanks. It was a beautiful morning, a cold, crisp morning in Auckland. Um, uh, uh, high pressure, low temperature. Uh, not full tanks, and normally always, normally always um, uh, flew it with full tanks, but in this case I knew I just wanted to do a few circuits, and um, so I taxi out, you know the runway, I got a full power, yeah, release the brakes, and oh my goodness <laughs> me, I was about knocked back into the seat with a thrust, thrust, and I looked down, and I thought to myself, I'm airborne. Oh yeah, I, I I did not expect it. It was incredible. It was took off like a scalded cat. It was incredible, wow. incredible. I can tell you. I was like, oh my god, half half fuel, high pressure, low temperatures. It was just incredible. Awesome, that's awesome. D, what would your most memorable flight or flights have been? I know you've just told us a really memorable one, but. I guess I guess the one that really it, it just I returned from this trip and thought if I died tomorrow I'd be happy. Wow. Yeah. wow. And 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 that was the flight that I did in um, Rob Mackley's Mooney, ferrying it from New Zealand to England for the 
um, so that he and Matt Wakeland could race it back to Sydney in the London to Sydney air race. Oh, that would be awesome. And wow. I, it was, it was the big adventure. Um, and, you know, you, we talked about um, the pros and cons of long-term, um, um, sorry, uh, long-range fuel tanks being put into the aircraft versus um, making shorter hops. And we decided that actually um, we'd had heard so many horror stories about uh, long-range ferry tanks that, that we opted not to do that. Interestingly, if I did it again, I probably would take long range. But um, it made for a very fascinating adventure because we had stopped regularly. We only had, um, I think, about eight hours fuel endurance. Okay. Um, so it took us 28 days to fly the wow. long from New Zealand out to, um, out to the UK. Which way and, did you go? Uh, east, east or west? We went via Australia up through Asia, um, f- overflew Myamna, uh, called a tech stop in Bangladesh to pick up some fuel, and then carried on into India, um, which is a really interesting place uh, for bureaucracy, and then carried on to, to um, Dubai. Um, at which point Rob left me um, so that he could fly up to England and get himself ready for, for the racing. And I carried on across um, the Saudi desert to, um, yeah, into Egypt um, and the Nile, uh, Luxor, and then from oh, there yeah. headed north to Cairo and on through um, to um, Crete, and up through, um, I overflew Italy, didn't stop in Italy, um, ended up landing at Corsica and then in quite icy conditions, um, overflying France um, into um, Biggin Hill. Wow. Wow. That would be incredible. Only, only to be told when we got there that... Um, the engine was not suitable for doing a race, and we'd have to change it. <laughs> we'd have to go home and get another one. Yeah, fortunately, <laughs> we found an engineer that, discuss, that that thought he knew what the problem with our engine was, and he it, it's another one of those stories. He worked through the night for days to put the boys on the start line wow. just in time so that they could start the race with wow. the rest of the group. So, yeah, another endurance story. Um, you know, we, we were on day one. We took off out of North Shore. We had to take off um, and join a, um, an IFR route. And we made our first IFR approach into um, Kai, Kai Tire. And, um, and we had to do a missed approach. Oh. And our alternate was Auckland. Oh, so we got on top and decided that we weren't going back. We were definitely leaving. So we um, uh, cancelled our IFR, um, saw that we could come down under, uh, outside of the cloud and then came back up the river and landed at Kerikeri. So at least we were a little further north than North Shore. 
Right. And the very <laughs> next day, we were on our way to um, to Lord Howe, and we were going via um, uh, Norfolk Island, and Norfolk Island closed due west. And then, so we decided, well, we we had sufficient fuel, so we would carry on, and then we we were. Um, maybe an hour out of um, Lord Howe Island and we're flying on fat, dumb and happy and next minute the RPM gauge fell to nothing. Whoa. And I looked out the window and saw that the propeller was still going round. Then I looked at the bomb and then I spoke to the gauges and Look back out the window and the prop was still going around. So at that point in time we had a very long discussion about in the event that this beast actually does stop, how what are we going to do and what's our routine for getting out of the our safety equipment when we ditch in the middle of the Oh goodness me. Fortunately we didn't have to test it. Yeah. It really got the heart racing. Wow. <laughs> That's scary. Um, as it turned out, it was a break in the cable, and um, fortunately, he had installed an electronic um, gauge that was that also was calibrated with um, the RPM. So, for the entire flight, flew using that as the basis for our RPM. Is that better? Uh, yeah, it is. I don't know what that noise is. It's really weird. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly not me. I keep on muting. So anyway. Yeah. So, mm. but it was a it was a huge adventure. When we arrived, as I say, we had to call a tech stock in Bangladesh because there wasn't any fuel in India for us, um, and we weren't we didn't have permission to land in Myanma, so we had to overfly Myanma. We didn't have sufficient endurance to get into. India. We also left the country without three flight clearances, so we got those along the route. Oh, wow. Um, and then when we got to India, there was no Avgas um, where we were on our anticipated flight uh, plan. And so we had to, uh, we were fortunately, I found an air traffic controller who was fascinated with what we were, what we were doing, and um, he got on the phone and he rang every airfield that he until he wider and further and further away until he found one in Patna who, who actually had Avgas and so we flew up to Av, uh, up to Patna we got permission from the chief uh, um, the director of civil aviation to modify our previously approved flight plan to fly to Patna and when we arrived there um, there was another plane from Australia sitting there on the tarmac unfortunately for them those boys had, were also on their way to the to the start of the London Sydney air race and but they had not got the appropriate clearances and they had been grounded and were causing a bit of an international incident in terms of flying into the country without permission oh. so we were a little concerned that they might try and do the same to us but we convinced the um, the controllers at Partner that no, no, we did in fact have the authority of the Director of Civil Aviation to 
modify our flight plan and actually be here. Um, and uh, but I can tell you the the red tape there is um, for your flight plan. It wasn't in triplicate. We have to have five or six copies of each flight plan that we that we that we um, submitted um, for each department. And as as you go through each department in India, um, you go up the rankings in terms of the people that you're dealing with. So, right. Before they before they will approve you to depart on your next leg of the journey. Um, I uh, left Dubai and I was flying across the Saudi desert, and we had stripped the aircraft of everything that we could out of it, and so we had calculated that was a, an eight-hour flight um, uh, if I flew directly across the Saudi desert without stopping. However, I got two or three hours into the flight and um, came across what I thought was just a little bit of um, high cloud and, and um, to give me some shelter from the sun, the beating sun, only to discover that, no, in fact, it was the precursor for a sandstorm. So I got uh. up close and not enough to enough to give me the 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 idea that I shouldn't be there so I turned turtle and put my tail between my legs and and flew back to Bahrain where um, uh, where I connected actually with the race director who was also flying up from Australia and asked him if I could please possibly um, get some fuel access some fuel reserves that the race had put aside. Um, so he arranged for me to pick up fuel in Riyadh, and I flew to Riyadh the following day, um, which was also another interesting story because obviously I'm landing in Saudi, which is a country that won't let women drive motor cars. Right, that's right, yes. So um, I wondered actually whether I was ever going to come out of it again, arriving in a small aeroplane. But um, after... The Saudis are extremely hospitable and um, and um, are talented in, in, in their hospitality in, in, in terms of the fact that while I was where I was being interrogated, it certainly didn't feel like it. Um, and after three hours of, of quiet negotiation, discussions and reassurances, I got my fuel, um, although it almost gave the refueler a heart attack when he figured out I was a woman. Um, and I flew off and caught up with the back of that same sandstorm right at the end of the day um, as I was departing Saudi and heading off towards Egypt. Um, fortunately, it was a lot, it, it was almost at the end of its energy. So um, it provided a beautiful red curtain across the sky at sunset. Um, but into the night, I had a perfect flight. Uh, across uh, to to Luxor and did a night landing into there, followed a 737 through the hold and could see the whole thing. Beautiful starlit night. It was just magnificent. Wow. So it was a wonderful way to finish, um, yeah, an interesting, interesting um, negotiation of airspace and um, cultures to get myself there. 
what an amazing trip. Mm-hmm. You know, Dee, you, you said that you haven't got time to read books, but I think you really need to write one. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Uh, so, Mike, what about your most um, oh, yeah. memorable flight? Well, yeah, yeah, my most memorable flight probably pales in comparison to what Dee's been up to, but um, as part of my part of my job, I, I used to be the um, New Zealand's um, uh, chief controller of air shows. So I organised and um, uh, the Wanaka, um, the um, Walsh Memorial Flying School, and also the airways involvement in uh, Warbirds over Wanaka from about 2000 till, till, until 2010. So um, it was 2008, um, I met um, Bob Fry through the Aerobatic Club and he had had uh, Eunice Kerris over here, obviously flying the flying his Sukhoi, uh, Rob Sukhoi 29. And after right. the air show had finished and we were, it was, it was on the Monday, I think, as all the departures were happening, I happened to stroll over and, and Rob said, do you want to go for a fly? I said, oh, yeah, why, why not? It's a nice area. He said, do you want to go for a fly with Eugis? You, 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 you couldn't have stopped me. I was in that aeroplane so bloody quickly and, and uh, wow. it, was, it, was, it was to do some... Um, um, some training, some uh, unusual attitudes and, and aerobatic, yeah, un- aerobatic unusual attitude training. But the uh, we, we, we got airborne and and uh, and the guy is so precise, the but so abrupt with everything. Like I just turning out of the circle, I think I smacked my, my helmet on each side of the cockpit as he rolled and then and then stopped rolling and rolled and everything's 45 degrees. 45 degrees, and you know, it was it was it was just amazing. Which we tried for about uh, 15, 20 minutes to do some training, but the the uh, intercoms and those sorts of aircraft aren't that flash. And so in the end, I just said, oh, why don't um, what why don't you do some flying? He said, what, what do you want to do? I said, I said, how about you do your your, your routine, your uh, your initial routine? He said, are you sure? And uh, yeah, absolutely. He said, well, climb up and do it a bit higher than I usually do for legal reasons. So we went up and we did his whole his whole sequence, um, which if you've ever seen Jurgis fly. Mm. And mm, yeah. in the, uh, the 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 gyroscopic um, and permutations that the, the, the chap puts the aircraft through, it was the most bar none, the most violent thing I've ever been in, including car accidents. Uh, the I was hanging on for all, for all death as he was going, and he, every now and then he'd sort of you know see if I was okay, and you know, I'd sort of give him the thumbs up, and it, it was by far the most memorable thing I've ever done. Um, in aviation, we did this whole sequence, including his curious wheel. But the, he's, he's, we, we got, I think, twelve rotations instead of his usual seventeen, because he says the twenty-nine doesn't spin up quite so well as the as his as his uh, and things. So, uh, yep. um, but it was just the most violent aerobat- aerobatic flight I've ever done. Just even watching the the, the control inputs as he's, as it's going through these these gyroscopic maneuvers i mean i mean i've done them I, at that stage i was i, I was part, a part owner of, of zk mad the pits so i was quite comfortable with aerobatics and positive negative g mind you not to negative 10 which is what we did on that flight um and so i was quite comfortable with control inputs and what aircraft did but he just sometimes just seemed to be stirring the pot with the with the uh with the uh with the stick and the feet were going for sort of Full deflection one way to full deflection the other way, and then he looked like he was trying to do some sort of um, um, breath stroke with with with, a, with what his feet were doing, and then and and it seemed to bear absolutely no relationship whatsoever to what the aircraft was doing. Um, wow. But again, 
you know, he had whenever he'd recover from something, it'd be there'd be no, you know, he'd recover it'd be perfectly on a on a vertical or perfectly on a forty five or um, there, there was no there was no over rotation like he didn't have to sort of turn back. Everything was absolutely utterly precise, but incredibly violent. Um, and I, as I said, I think the the G meter at the end of it said something like plus twelve minus ten. Um, and wow. I had a, wow. I burst a blood vessel in one of my eyes, and uh, but it was just the most fun you could ever have with your pants on. Um, <laughs> was, yeah, um, even surpasses the the flight I had with Dave and the Spitfire, uh, which you know I'd wanted to do since I think I was four or five years old. But um, um, yeah, the the flight with Yugis and the and the Sukhoi was something special. That is brilliant. Yeah. Um, I'm going to spring something on you guys now that I hadn't uh, put into the show, uh, into the um, the pre-show notes because I only just sort of came up with it. But I'm going to ask all three of you and and future guests as well. Uh, what? Who are your aviation heroes? Who are the people that inspired you in aviation? Well, for me, um, it'd be Pam Collins. Okay. Yeah. Um, just. Mm. Um, just, I guess, you know, she, she, um, she was the first woman to represent New Zealand in aerobatic championship internationally. Yep. Um, she came home from that. She set up, um, precision flying, which is the sport I'm, I now represent, um, fortunate enough to represent New Zealand in. Um, she has, the most amazing manner with people that she she's so inclusive um, in everything that she does, um, and and I wish I could be half the woman that she is. <laughs> wow! Yeah, mm. fantastic. And that is putting you on the spot. I'm just trying to think. The probably the first person I ever flew with, apart from my commercial airlines. As a boy, was a top dressing pilot by the name of Joe McMurray, um, who lived across the road from us when I was when I was young, sort of five, six, seven years old. Um, he died a, a few years later of, of cancer. Um, he flew uh, Fletchers out of um, out of Pahiatua, um, and he'd be probably the earliest aviation experience I'd had. Um, other people that I think I would definitely look up to is Yugos, obviously, because he's just a legend. Mm, mm, um, yes. On the local scene, probably the way Dave Phillips handles an aircraft is just beyond belief. Mm, whether, it's, uh, yeah. whether, it's, yeah. whether it's the the his, yeah the um, uh, the Tiger Moth or his um, or his jets and just you know and, and the the most unassuming chap you'd ever meet. Uh, with flying the, the mosquito or the or, or anything, yeah, he's just the most unassuming chap. Right. Um, can't think of any others off just just offhand. Mm. Brett, oh, I mean, being a warbird man, and that this is incredibly cliche, but it's true. Those uh, men and women who flew the um, who flew uh, the latest latest aircraft. But, Back then, what we can now consider warbirds, you know, uh, flying in all weathers, day and night, being in planes that might have been not particularly safe, and you know, um, with people shooting at them. Those are people who flew in the war. Uh, uh, to me, that's I find that still incredible to think about. You know, eighteen-year-olds flying bombers, heavy Lancaster bombers with two, three hundred hours up. Yep. 
um, twenty thousand yeah. feet in in, win- in the northern European winter. I mean, it was, yeah, it blows my mind. Yeah, cliche, yeah. I know, but I mean, goodness me, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Looking back, I'm I'm forty two, you know, and, and my son's uh, twelve, and you know, back then, six years time, he'd be flying a bomber. Could be. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, actually, uh, I remember was it probably about two years ago, Brett? You emailed me and you said um, you'd just been to a cemetery and you came across a grave of an RNZF yes. guy that you didn't expect to see there, yeah. and Price. and asked me if I could find any information. Yes, I went and uh, sorry. Yes, I went to his grave and um, it was we were in Europe and we did did a trip. Um, we did a cruise down the um, uh, the the Seine and, and went to the Normandy beaches and went to a. A, uh, a cemetery where there was a, a Kiwi got uh, two Kiwis buried, and one was uh, um, Price. Yes, and uh, and the amazing thing is, when I did some research for you and got back to you, it turned out he had lived in the same street that you yes, live in. Yes, he had, and and it, only a few doors down, and uh, and then even more amazing later, when it came out about the uh, Canadian uh, project to restore. Uh, a, Haw- a Hawker Typhoon. Uh, that was his aircraft. Correct. And so his aircraft has actually been restored to fly and in Canada. And so, you know, that guy he had quite a story in, in itself. And um, it's it's just amazing that uh, you know to think that he walked along the same street that you you live in, and um, one day you may actually get to see his aircraft flying again. I that would be that would be incredible. It really would be. It really would be. And the fact that we just stumbled across his grave as part of a tour of the Normandy, well, of the Normandy beaches and region, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's brilliant. Um, well, probably just to, we're getting <laughs> quite long in the tooth here now, so probably just to uh, close out this episode, uh, um, I usually ask about shout-outs, and that's uh, time for the panellists Um to sort of promote any good causes or interesting projects or clubs or events, uh, aviation businesses or anything that they think should have a shout out. So, is there anything you guys would like to promote? Get flying warbirds. Yeah. <laughs> Boys and, and girls, young men and women, go and fly them. <laughs> oh, sorry. I, mean, I guess on that on that note, obviously, um, we've got the um, aviation. Um, uh, school in Matamata in January. Mm, mm. Yes, the Welsh. You know, the Welsh um, yep. and ATC. And so, um, you know, for young people that are uh, interested and keen to, to to give aviation a go, they should definitely be going out to their local aero clubs, um, signing up to Young Eagles programs if they can, and um, getting themselves involved with the likes of the... Um, the Welsh Memorial Flying School. Absolutely, that's so, great. That's a great event. I've um, donated a, a few uh, Stripe Master formations through there, and and other other funding for the camp. And I'll go, I'll go next time in the in the Harvard. I think it's it's a great thing to support. Yeah, yeah. I was chief controller there for ten years, so yeah, well that's done. A great event. Absolutely. Uh, for uh, for any uh, established pilot who might want to get into the competition aerobatics, which uh, uh, two of you do. Uh, how do how do they go about getting into that? Um, the New Zealand Aerobatic Club. Um, we've got a website. Well, we've we've got a website that's in a bit of a work in progress at the moment because the the original one got hacked. But 
um, um, it's probably the, the first port of call. Uh, find yourself a, a, an aerobatic aircraft, you know, either, either rent one, you know, Waikato Aero Club, for instance, has great sort of uh, few of the little robins or the alphas, uh, which is good to, good to, le- which are good to learn in. Um, the nationals are held every February in, uh, in Masterton now. Um, they, we, you know, invite anyone to come along and watch and or, or partake. Um, there's all sorts of different categories. Flying New Zealand also do their have a, have an aerobatic category in uh, in their competitions, um, which is well, which is sort of the entry level stuff. Which um, you know, I think every, everyone every pilot should at least do some sort of aerobatics to to know what to mm. what to do when your aircraft is upside down and how to recover safely is something that everyone should have to do. You know, if you get stuck in wake turbulence or any sort of you know big rotor or or, or mount, mountain turbulence or something, then you could up in that end up upside down so to be comfortable in that attitude and know how to recover safely without overstressing or breaking your aircraft is is vitally important um so at least uh, you know an introductory aerobatics course at your local local aero club or if if your local aero club doesn't do it then find one that does you know it's um it's uh the great safety uh uh course to do to be comfortable and, and it gives you um increased um um, comfort and 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 confidence, knowing what the flight profile of your airplane looks like. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, definitely. Brilliant. Okay, well, thank you very much uh, to all our listeners out there. I do apologise for a, a bit of background noise that was coming through via Skype. We don't know where that's been coming from. Uh, I will be editing some of it out. I hope, but. Uh, some of it is uh, going to be in the show. So uh, sorry about that. Um, but uh, if you've got any thoughts or questions or feedback or uh, anything that you want to send in, uh, get on to the Wings Over New Zealand forum or onto the Wings Over New Zealand show Facebook page. And, uh, uh, you know, we love to hear feedback uh, and ideas for the show. And, uh uh, I think there, there'll be a lot of people who found this particular episode really interesting because I know I did, and uh, I'm, I think I've had three really good guests. I want to thank all three of you. Thank you very much. Well, thank thanks, you for that. Thank you. thanks for the hard work. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't hard work. This is lovely. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, uh, I sit back and ask questions and listen to stories. <laughs> <Excellent>. <laughs> well, thanks very much, guys. Thank thank you. You. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Dave. Yeah. Thanks, guys. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.